Welcome back to the Video Store Junkies podcast. It's a podcast about movies and the experience of watching them. It's Friday night and we're back in the video store where we've actually been every Friday night for the last two months, although you probably wouldn't know it by looking at our episode output. That's because we're going to cover Jaws, but it's been checked out for the last two months straight. So instead, we thought we'd give up and cover a different monster movie. Because the ocean is a scary place, but you can avoid it completely by staying on dry land. But what happens when the abyss comes knocking on your front door? Billy dress, I'll take him in town with him. Hit the store before it gets all bought out. How'd you folks hold up in the storm? Big insurance day. Sorry to hear that. What's going on? It's death. Something in the mist! Shut the doors! Shut the door! The only way we're gonna help ourselves is to seek rescue. Tie this around your waist. For four. You'll let us know you got at least 350. There's nothing out there. Nothing in the mist. What if you're wrong? Then I guess that joke would be on me. That's right. Tonight we're talking about Frank Darabont's 2007 adaptation of Stephen King's classic horror novella, The Mist. I'm Zachary Edgerton, and as one of the co-hosts of the Video Store Junkies, there aren't three people in the world I'd rather be stuck with in a supermarket that's besieged by extra-dimensional creatures than my other co-hosts. So before we get started, let's go around and briefly introduce ourselves and talk a little bit about our background with this film. When did we first see it, and what has our relationship to it been over the years? And since this is an adaptation by one of the titans of horror, I'm also kind of interested to hear whether you guys were Stephen King fans or not. So uh, let's start with someone, because I know for a fact this is a, a family favorite in his household. I believe your family watches ah. it uh, every yeah. Thanksgiving. Bill, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell us about your background with this one? <laughs> okay. Well, I saw this basically opening night here in Sanford, I think. Um, yeah, we've been here in Sanford. And, oh, I'm Bill Mulligan. I'm a high school science teacher, indie filmmaker, and my first book is going to be published real soon. Um, <clears throat> so I saw this with my wife, Shauna, um, and it, my relationship with this movie is this is the movie that Shauna throws in my face at every opportunity. I, I, the, the two movies that she'll never, never stop reminding me that I took her to see are Saving Private Ryan and The Mist. She doesn't like war movies, and I told her that Saving Private Ryan was more of a character study, you know, Spielberg movie, probably <gasps> lots of... Yeah, lots of shiny lights and long, you know, looks of amazement and wonderment. And actually, it was about a bunch of characters that you get to know, and then they're disintegrated when a tank shoots them. Um, so, yeah, everything, that, that was that. And uh, then I took her to see The Mist, which uh, was 95% a really fun movie for her. But the 5% is going to be thrown in my face until the end of time. And we watched it again yesterday. <laughs> she still was just giving me looks and shaking her head like like i'm responsible for this like i wrote the novella or that they just ignored for the ending um but i like it i, I you know we'll talk what well, we'll talk i mean I, actually watching it again this time because no we don't watch it very often in my household so it's not a it's not on permacast here 
Uh, I noticed some problems I hadn't really remembered that much before. But uh, I'm a big Stephen King fan, up to a point. And I don't know what that point is, but there there came a point where I stopped reading <laughs> his stuff. You know, I, I, I but, but it's a pretty far point along his journey. So, I mean, uh, I probably got more Stephen King novels than any other writer I can think of off the top of my head. I can't think of anyone else who I have more novels of, you know, written by than Stephen King. And even if that's just one third of his output, that's still a, a, a bookshelf. The man's prolific. And I happen to like The Mist quite a bit. Um, I went back and reread it today just to, you know, sort of freshen up my mind a bit on it. Skim through it more, I guess, to see the differences between that and the movie. Stephen King adaptations have not always been hits, as we all know. Um, part of that, I think, due to some quirks of his, like, he's not that good with endings. He's great with beginnings. Man, is he great with beginnings. You start, you, you pick up a book by Stephen King and start reading it, and eventually they're going to make you buy it, because you, you're, you're, you've just been sitting there reading the damn book. Um, he's, he knows how to get the hooks in, but endings sometimes fall a little bit flat. And this one, I actually think The Mist, the original novella, has a great ending. And they completely ignored it to create another memorable great ending. So that's my relationship with this one. It's uh, It gets nice. brought up a lot in my house. Let's put it that way. <laughs> nice. Hey, you know what, uh, Bill? It's interesting, though. You mentioned the two movies that Shauna throws in your face. You know who did some uncredited script doctoring on Save it Private, <laughs> Saving Private Ryan, right? Uh, No. Frank Darabont? Uh, Frank Darabont. No <laughs> yeah. joke. Well, there you go. <laughs> no joke. So, yeah. I'll bet, I, I bet he wrote the part where a character that we've been following comes across a tank and they shoot him with bullets that I'm guessing are about the size of a ham because all of a sudden oh he's not God. there anymore. There's just like a red mist where he used to be. And Ooh, I got an red, elbow in the mist. ribs. A red there mist. Yeah. 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 There you go. Well, that's funny. That's coincidental, but that's funny. <laughs> um, well, cool. Uh, let's move on to the member of our group that uh, we lovingly refer to as the Mrs. Carmody of the Video Store Junkies, uh, Paul. <laughs> you're actually, I think it could actually be argued <laughs> that, that uh, I believe you're actually personally responsible for Thomas Jane's success in, as an actor. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your relationship to this movie, and uh, most importantly, how you inspired Thomas Jane to become an actor? Okay. Well, I'm actually going to go back a little bit before... Um my interactions with Thomas Jane, uh, back to 1984. I was in high school then. And, uh, my friends and I being nerds that we were, we would listen to on WAMU at 11 o'clock at night, they would have NPR playhouse and they'd have different audio dramas. Um, and you know, we'd all listen to them and then talk about them like the next day and stuff. And, uh, one of them they did was in 1984. It was a ZBS production of Stephen King's the mist and it was recorded with Kunstkopf sound recording. And what they did is for Kunstkopf for sound recording, apparently they have a fake head with molded ear ears and they have the microphones in the ears. So basically it's 3D sound. So you sat there in the dark and listened to this. And then of course they had to fuck away with the monsters flying around. And you just sat there in the dark and you would listen to the monsters flying around you and coming at you and so forth. It was great. So that's how I first ran into the mist. Um, go forward another year, uh, 1985. 
Um, so it's the spring of 1985, my senior year in high school. I always did theater productions. Um, I was a stage crew primarily, light. Um, that year, and in the spring, we always, we'd always do a, a musical. And that year, I hadn't really done a lot of the stagecraft. Um, it was my senior year, but I was going to play, play tuba at the time, and so I was going to play In the Pit. Um, and instead of doing a traditional musical, we did a vaudeville-style review called In the Good Old Days Gone By. Uh, on the stage crew, there was a um, sophomore, two years younger than me, uh, a Mr. Thomas Elliott. And he was, I think he was a JV football player, and he had a bunch of the football players had gotten involved with it, and he was building sets. And he joked around a lot, so someone convinced him to audition for it. And lo and behold, they said, sure, you know what, we're going to have you do the old, we're going to have you team up with a, a, a guy I knew named, his name is Ron Swanson, um, and uh I actually knew him from elementary school, and he and Thomas Elliott did the old uh, um, uh, Niagara Falls routine. And, oh, classic. Uh, yeah, classic. And so I was there, you know, playing the tuba in the, in the pit for that. Well, Thomas Elliott fell in love with the stage, fell in love with it. Apparently, he dropped out the next year. Um, I think as mid used his middle name instead, he became Thomas Jane. So there I was. I was there at his very first public performance on stage and when he actually fell in love with acting. And so if I hadn't wow. been playing tuba, who knows? Maybe he wouldn't have. So there you go. So I'm responsible for Thomas Jane's complete success. So thank you wow. very much. Um, and then years go by and uh, the movie came out. I didn't see it in the theater. and But I heard, oh, it's great. you got to go see it. It's amazing. It's fantastic. I heard this years later. Um, and so I think I rented it at one point, um, watched it and, you know, we'll talk about it, the ending, but yeah, when my jaw dropped and then dropped even more and dropped even more, I was like, holy shit. And I think it wasn't until after that, that I ended up reading the novella. Um, I've read it a couple times since then. Cause it's been, I think, anthologized a couple times as well. Um, and, uh, there you go. So that's, that's my, that's my story. Nice. Uh, did you want to say your full name by the way, or do you just want to be known oh. as Paul? Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm Paul the Donut Man. No, um, <laughs> it's Paul Cardulo. Nice. And that was Thomas Spriggs High School. Thomas Spriggs Wooten High School. Sorry, Thomas S. Wooten High School was where he went in Rockville, Maryland. So there you go. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because that whole story sounds like it, it's completely made up. And we should just tell our listeners that's not a bit. That, that all happened. Except yeah, no, I actually. Except oh. for maybe the part about him being inspired by your tuba playing. But I mean, I don't know about no telling. that. I actually have, yeah. I can show you my, my senior yearbook. There's actually a, a two-page oh, spread don't. of him and Ron Swanson. <laughs> Not of me, but a two-page spread of him and Ron Swanson rehearsing. And he had, he had like, a pompadour. He had, like, poofy hair back then. Um, and that, that was distinctive. So just to let you know. Nice. And, uh, by the way, I was going to mention this later, but uh, since you mentioned it, I'll, I'll mention it now. You know who played the role of David Drayton? in the audio drama. No, who played the role of David Drayton in audio uh, drama? William Sadler. Frank Darabont? Not oh. Frank Darabont. No, but uh, William He's Sadler. He's answered did, everything. Which, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, although he may have. I don't it's know. True. It may have been Frank Darabont pretending to be William Sadler as David Drayton. So, uh, no. Uh, let's move on now to our, uh, last but not least, our, our third, <coughs> excuse me, our, our final co-host here, uh, who I don't have a, a witty introduction for you, Renee. So why don't you just introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about your relationship with this film? Uh, hello, I'm Renee St. Aubin, and uh, I'm just a lady. Uh, 
And I don't remember when I first saw this movie, but I've seen it a few times. And, oh, it's really good. The, uh, uh, mm, the ending doesn't really bother me quite as much. I, You know, I'm a little bit, a little bit on the nihilistic side, if you haven't already figured that out. Um, so it was just kind of like, oh, that's neat. Because, you know, you don't really see those kind of endings very often. So I kind of enjoy the endings when everybody dies. Oh, sorry. You can cut that part out, right? Anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, th- I think you know, we should say spoiler alerts. Uh, you know, come on. it's The movie's been yeah. out for a long time. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no way you can talk about this one and do it justice without spoiling the fuck. Well, right, so. yeah, if but yeah, I w- I'll say if you're listening to the three-hour podcast about moving, you're expecting no spoilers. Then that's kind of on you. So yeah, yeah. I guess I just wasn't thinking. You know, I didn't intend to break it out during the introductions. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I, th- I think we adhere to the traditional 15 years and then all bets are off. It's true. Oh my god. Yeah. So you know, relationship-wise. Um, you know, we've seen each other a few times. We enjoy each other. We see each other every time it comes to town. So never ends and I love well. Stephen, never ends well. Um, and Stephen King. I love Stephen King. You know, Stephen King. I love Frank Bar- Darabont. So Stephen, I, I, Stephen King, practically your neighbor, isn't he? He is practically my neighbor. Um, <laughs> he is. <laughs> yeah, didn't Didn't you say you've seen him in like the grocery store before? Oh man, I'm so sad. I. Had, my friend saw him at the grocery store, and her daughter now works at that grocery store. So, you know, the sighting possibilities are much higher now. But it was really funny. She saw him at the grocery store, and then after a couple seconds, she realized that she was following him. And she goes, <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> like, what am I doing? <laughs> Sorry, Stephen King, if you're hearing this. He's probably listening. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna, that, I'm gonna put him, I'm gonna put his name in the meta tags, and I know that he sure looks at that stuff. So, if if you're the guy who wrote Misery, having <laughs> someone follow you around probably is <laughs> scarier than it is for regular folks. You know? Yeah, I don't, I don't think Stephen K. I, I, I'm trying to think now. I don't think he's talked about having stalkers. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. uh, maybe he he's avoided that somehow. But or he dispatches them. Well, yeah. or yeah, or that. I know that I know that like a lot of people show up at his house be, just because he has like a really cool oh. house. Like he lives in the sort of house in uh, his house in Maine. Basically, looks like the sort of house that you'd expect uh, a horror writer to live at. So, but it's mm-hmm. like gated, so you can kind of take a picture, I guess, at the gate. But, anyways, cool. Um, okay, well, let's move on. No, to... wait. No. Oh, God. What's your relationship with this movie? Oh my God! I totally forgot. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sorry that I was like, no, no, I'm sorry. I just, I forget. I'm so boring. I forget I'm here sometimes, even when I'm talking. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Well, as I said before, I'm Zachary Edgerton, and I actually remember seeing this movie. I probably saw this. I probably saw this the like a day or two before it came out, because as I've mentioned multiple times, I was working at a theater in like the mid 2000s. And at this time I was a projectionist. So I got to like, this was uh, back in the day when 35 millimeter prints were, you know, actually like film. So we'd, we'd basically build the prints. And then if we wanted to, we could watch the movies like Thursday night. Uh, this was back when movies didn't open on Thursday night regularly. So yeah, I probably saw it uh, but right like the day before it came out. I remember really enjoying it, I, but also having some problems with it, which Bill, actually, I'm, I'm very interested to hear some of the stuff that you said you noticed uh, that you didn't notice the first time that kind of bothered you because 
I definitely, when I first watched it, I definitely had some problems with it. I, I think I still have some problems with it. Although some of the things that I found problematic or unbelievable the first time around, I've actually come around to uh, having a different opinion about those. So it'll be very interesting to talk about uh, kind of how my opinion of this film has evolved. And I've watched it a couple of times over the years. And in fact, I just watched it a few weeks ago, which is why I, we, we've mentioned this, uh, you know, movie probably half, half a dozen times or more on this podcast, but rewatching it made me realize that, yeah, it's actually, there's enough here to probably talk about. So, uh, and then Stephen King, it's interesting because I was never a huge Stephen King fan in my like younger years, but then uh, about five or six years ago, I, I had read a couple of his things. And then five or six years ago, I started a Stephen King like read through of all of his stuff sequentially. So started with uh, Carrie and I'm now up to the early 2000s. And in the mm. in the time that I've, it's taken me for, to read like 30 years of his output, he's now published like another dozen books. So mm. did um, you get to Insomnia yet? Uh, I did. Yeah. Oh, we'll have to talk about that later. And also yeah. before I forget, um, maybe at the end, I would love, Bill, if you would tell me the differences between, or maybe as we go, uh, well, the yeah. differences between the book and the movie, because I have not read mm-hmm. that story. So I'm very, very curious. I, yeah. I'm curious about the ending, because I, I remembered the ending differently. It's been a while since I've seen it. And I thought they did cover it in the movie and then just went beyond it. So I, I it, But it's been a long time, so I was curious yeah, to hear from you. The, yeah. The, the it, well, it, yeah, it's a, a very interesting adaptation because of how it's 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 so close to the book to the point where he actually uses a lot of the same dialogue mm. but um then it's interesting that there are some some di- uh significant differences so yeah we'll, we'll touch on that stuff we'll also touch on there are a couple of uh kind of stephen king easter eggs in here that i think i i noticed uh. watching it this time around which i probably didn't pick up on the first time because i hadn't read a lot of his other stuff so uh, we can also talk about that a little bit and also, I would just like to apologize to everyone in advance because I'm going to be calling people Dale, Carol, and Andrea. And I know that's not their names, but that's right. what I'm going to be it's calling fine. them a lot. So please forgive me. Thank yeah, you. it's fine. It's unavoidable. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah we'll, for anyone who does not understand that reference immediately, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit as well. Uh, okay, Renee, can we move on now? Have I have I covered everything? Oh, I guess. All right. <laughs> Does anyone have a song to sing us out with? Oh God, no, no. That's the, that's our other episode format. Jesus. Although Gosh. I will I will sing us out on the Dead Can Dance, the host of Seraphim, <laughs> at the end of this episode. So stay tuned for that, folks. But uh, before I we get, get to misty. That, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Before we get to all that, let's let's move on to our next section, which uh, I call Tale of the Videotape. And this is where we just give uh, a couple of a couple of numbers related to this film to kind of uh, put the film into context, especially if you don't know all the details about it. Uh, so this one was released in theaters on November twenty first, two thousand and seven. And I gotta say, okay, I know that the we'll talk a little bit about the production in a minute, and I know that they probably could not have gotten this film out any sooner. But I gotta say this. <laughs> Any studio that releases a horror film less than a month after Halloween, I just do not understand. I, this, this is the same thing that they did with Doctor Sleep. They put it out in November. And so, is that when this yeah. came out? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and the reason I mention that is, uh, so this movie had a budget of, uh, it, I think it was, well, according to the numbers.com, it was $13 million. 
Uh, I, I read an interview with Frank Darabont where he said it was closer to 17 million. So I don't know which number is actually right, but uh, somewhere in the mid. Yeah, chump change, basically, uh, as far as Hollywood is concerned. <laughs> and uh, in terms of box office, this movie made, when it was released, uh, $25.5 million domestically, $31.5 million international for about $57 million worldwide. And uh, which isn't terrible. Like, I think that, I mean, this movie did not do well. But it also didn't just completely bomb. Uh, it also, uh, co- again, according to the numbers.com, it apparently made a lot of money on DVD. So I guess people wanted to check out that ending. Yeah. According to them, it made over thirty, a little over thirty million dollars uh, on on DVD sales. So now, did uh, they did they not also release on the DVD the black and white version? Uh, they did. I don't know if uh, people were spending thirty million dollars to see the black and white version of the mist. Uh, but oh, yes, listen, there is... <laughs> it's 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 worth spending the extra money so that you don't have to get up and, and do that exhausting turning off the color on your TV. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, oh I think, gosh. yeah, I'm sure I'm sure the three people who actually wanted to see the black and white version were very excited. But uh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> have you watched the black and white version, Bill? Because I, actually I have. Okay, I have. And uh, it's listen. Uh, so, OK. Um, I mean, it's fine. But the movie really looks good. It's a good-looking movie, so you're losing a lot when you lose the color. And it doesn't look to me like the black-and-white version is that far above literally just turning off the color. It's I'm sure they put more work into it than what I'm saying there, because these are artists and everything. But if you really were going to shoot this in black-and-white, you would have to plan it out to be shot in black-and-white. Colors would be chosen to look good in black-and-white. The lighting would be different. It's... You don't. You can always tell movie or indie films and everything that have a black and white sequence, and they've just shot it without color, which is not the same thing as shooting black and white. So it's a gimmick. It's it's not worth the thirty one dollars just to see it in black. And white. Seriously. <laughs> well, yeah, it's interesting though because I think Darabont has said that he w- like he would have wanted to make this film in black and white. There was no way oh, sure. they were going to give him even thirteen million dollars to do that. Although it's, it's kind of yeah. interesting that this is the second film we've talked about that has a black and white cut. So, because, uh, you know, yeah. Fury Road also, George Miller, you know, said he wished that he could have made that movie in black and white. But Well, th- okay, that's an old man who's taken a lot of drugs talking there because Fury Road <laughs> is scrumptious. <laughs> I mean, come yeah. on, dude, dude, stop. Let's let's not talk nonsense here. You made a masterpiece. Now shut up. Come on, stop. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, to to put the the box office performance of this movie in perspective, this was the ninety uh, seventh highest grossing film oh, oh. for two thousand seven. Oh so, God! Yeah. What hey, were some of the films that didn't beat? It, exactly. It cracked the top one hundred. Uh, two thousand seven was kind of a weird time for horror. Yeah. Uh, I think this it was, was a like, weird time. <laughs> yeah. This was like the middle of the kind of I guess the torture porn phase was starting to uh. end. But I don't think it had really been replaced with anything else. So, uh, for reference, the the highest grossing horror film of 2007. Uh, well, technically, it's uh, one of Bill's favorite movies of all time. Uh, I am oh, Legend God. with 2006 oh, uh, million. Uh, uh, <laughs> fuck off, Jesus! No. <laughs> Shrek the Third. Well, I don't I don't really consider that a horror film. So I'm actually going to refer yeah. to the second the second highest grossing horror film of that year uh, with 71 million dollars was uh, 1408. Which uh, I don't know if anyone is familiar with that film, but that is uh, another Stephen King adaptation. So we got two yeah. in one year. 
They should be familiar with it because I recommended it on Q-Tips. It's true. It's true. (laughs) If you're not, then you're not paying attention to Renee's recommendations and you're a bad person. So very disappointed. um, Also thought it was kind of (laughs) interesting because uh, I am legend coming out the same year. It's uh, that's actually, there was an interview. I think it was actually a a, a comic con panel when the movie came out with Jeremy Martin King and they both referred to that as like one of the biggest influences on them. The book, not the not the Will Smith yeah, yeah, movie. Unless <laughs> <laughs> anyone's gonna burn uh, all my Stephen King novels. <laughs> yeah, um, that that was when Stephen. Well, that's when uh, Bill stopped liking Stephen King. He's like, all mm-hmm. of a sudden, he's very influenced by Will Smith's yeah. "I Am Legend." <laughs> oh god. <laughs> um, and then finally, this film to kind of put it in perspective, the reception of this film. I didn't write down any specific reviews for this one, but uh, it does have a 58 on Metacritic, which isn't great, but isn't yeah. bad. And also it has a IMDb of 7.1, which is actually Roger, pretty good considering. Oh, what's that, Bill? Ro- uh, Roger Ebert gave it two stars. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Eh. It's obviously very divisive. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that those are the numbers I have. Um, normally we do taglines, and I can only find one. Uh, which yeah. is uh, really uh, r- a pretty generic tagline, but uh, I believe the only tagline for this one was "Fear changes everything." Sure. Okay. I mean, okay. It's, well, it's, not, it's they pulled that one out of the hat of uh, taglines. <laughs> yeah. 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 Fortune cookies. <laughs> I guess yeah. it's kind of. I guess you could say it's kind of appropriate, but yeah, whatever. It's lazy and lame. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, let's move on. Let's talk a little bit before we get into the meat of the discussion on this film. Let's just talk a little bit about the history and making of this film. And as always, guys, feel free to interrupt me if you have any tidbits to add or if you're just tired of hearing me talking because I always feel like I talk for too long <laughs> during this section. No, that's right. <laughs> um, so uh, Darabont actually mentioned that the origin of his making this film went all the way back to kind of the beginning of his career, which I actually hadn't realized. Uh, There was an interview with him that was uh, actually not too long ago. It was October of 2016, and he was talking about his uh, originally considering this film for an adaptation. Uh, His quote here was, A couple of years had gone by, and my writing career was just finally getting into gear, and I was thinking that maybe I should think of a directing project. For me, I love both The Mist and Shawshank Redemption. I love them both for different reasons, but it's Stephen King writing at his best. Uh, so he's basically talking about, for those of you who aren't familiar with uh, Frank Darabont, he has directed three feature films, and they were all based on Stephen King stories, Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile, and The Mist. And uh, so, yeah, apparently he had been actually been considering making this into a film as early as uh, this would have been like the late 80s, early 90s. And I'm kind of glad that they waited. I don't know if they would have been able to do all the stuff with the monsters that they did. Um, and also Shawshank Redemption, kind of an interesting story because it came out. Uh, I, I didn't, uh, I can't remember exactly where it was, but it was like, I think it made maybe like 15 or $20 million at the box office. Basically that movie completely bombed. And then it got nominated for, I think something like six or seven Academy Awards and Darabont mentioned that, like, they basically, the movie came out, I think, in 94. No one went to see it. And then it was literally the most rented film of 1995. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And people kind of, yeah, they, people kind of uh, discovered it. And it is, to this day, the number one top-rated film on the IMDb, uh, like, top 250. So it is a film <laughs> that has obviously resonated with a lot of people. 
So I thought that was kind of interesting that apparently he had been thinking about this movie all the way back uh, in, I guess, the late 80s. I think he had mentioned that he actually read the story back in uh, 1980 when it was originally published because this one was, uh, this was published in uh, uh, Dark Forces was the name of the anthology in 1980. And then it was republished uh, in, I I think it was slightly edited in 1985. It was published in the Graveyard Shift story collection uh, by Stephen King. So uh, this is also not the first adaptation. As Paul mentioned, there was an audio drama in, I think it was 1987, although, Paul, did you say you listened to earlier, or am I It's Yeah, this? no, no 19, well, I mean, what I've looked up, it says 1984, and that okay. would, I, I would have been in high school at the time, in 87, I was in college, so. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, maybe maybe the thing that I looked at was wrong. Um, and then there was also very interesting, There, uh, there's actually a game adaptation of this, which I have not played, but in 1985, uh, the company Mindscape made an interactive fiction game based on The Mist. Uh, for those of you who don't know, interactive fiction is where you type in, it's just text, there are no images, and you type in, go west, and it says, you're now standing in front of a phone booth, and, you know, that sort of thing. So uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. This movie, like I mentioned, the production on this movie, Frank Darabont, like, talked about how it was basically breakneck. Uh, he said that they prepped it in, I guess they did pretty much all the post or the pre-production in six weeks Uh, He said the previous, the shortest pre-production he had done was five months. Uh, They did this in six weeks. Uh, Shooting was six weeks, and then the post-production was six months. So I think think that means it was basically, I think it was like around nine months from the time they went uh, from pre-production to actually hitting theaters, which is just insane. Uh, Like I said, I don't think they could have gotten into theaters any sooner, but it's kind of unfortunate that this came out when it did because uh really releasing horror movies in november is just insane to me because everyone wants to go see horror movies in october so kind of wonder if this would have done better if it had been released a month earlier but that's pretty much all i have for the production i don't know is there anything else that you guys want to mention i'm curious what horror movies were released that year in halloween Oh, that's a good question. I know that, uh, like, I think it was Saw 4 or Saw 5, I think, was released This is 2000, 2001. 2007. Let me just, yes. uh, let me just search my memory, a.k.a. <laughs> Google. <laughs> yeah, well, well, while you're doing that, I'll mention something else that's uh, that we'll, we'll talk about kind of the look of this movie. Because one of the other kind of critical details of how this movie actually got made was uh, Darabont had directed an episode of The Shield, which at the time was kind of a big uh, cable cop show. And he had worked in television before that. I don't think he had directed anything in television. He had written for television. He had written, uh, he had actually been writing, I think he had wrote several episodes of The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles in like the early 90s. Uh, But this was like the first time that he had directed an episode of television. I think he had mentioned, or the, the showrunner had found out that he was a fan and he offered him like the opportunity to direct an episode. And Darabont mentioned that basically the previous direction, uh, directing uh, uh, jobs that he had done were like classical music, making Shawshank and Green Mile. And he compared making an episode of television and also to uh, making this movie. He, he said it was basically like jazz versus classical music. And... He actually liked directing The Shield so much, and I think he said that he had it in mind that, that the uh, 
this movie, The Mist, had to be kind of shot in a different way than his previous films. And I guess he enjoyed the process so much and he enjoyed the look of the final product that he actually hired a bunch of people from The Shield to make this movie while The Shield was on break. So we'll talk a little bit about the uh, the director of photography and the editor and like the two main camera people were from directly from The Shield. Like he had worked with them on there and then he hired them to make this movie. So uh, if you'll probably notice this movie has a very unique look and we'll definitely talk about that a little bit. But uh, I thought that was kind of interesting that uh, there's a very specific reason that this movie looks the way it does. So, uh, Bill, have you <laughs> found what other movie, what movies were released in uh, well, I, around one Halloween? Thing, I, I've come to the conclusion 2007 was not the golden age. Of <laughs> it was, it was I am, I'm, I'm looking, it's like, these are movies that if you told me they're going to be released a year from now, I wouldn't even blink. But no, they were actually released almost 20 years ago. Yeah. I want someone to eat cheese with the brother Solomon. Uh, wow, <laughs> Mr. Woodcock. I don't remember that one. Uh, let's That's see. That's uh, one of Billy Bob Thornton's uh, best best performances. Well, no, I'm just kidding. Getting a head start. Oh, and by the way, um, they refuse to call these movies horror. They, they're called suspense. Like that yeah. suspenseful movie you remember, Resident Evil: Extinction, which was on <laughs> September 21st. Yeah. Um, and then. Not a whole lot of horror. Well, there's one called The Seeker, The Dark is Rising. I don't remember that one. Heartbreak yeah, that's, Kid was pretty that's like horrible, a YA. but not horror. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right, right. They're all looking for the next uh, Hunger Games. Tyler yeah. Perry's Why Did I Get Married? That was pretty damn scary. <laughs> uh, okay, come on. Let's something. I'm in October 19th, and, and it's it's a desert. But, yeah. okay, October 19th. Here's the, This is, i got to admit, this is a great one. 30 days of night that's true yeah that i wouldn't want to i would not want to be the mist competing with 30 days a night but that's Although october 19th even, even that i think even that didn't do too well like i said it was just a weird time for horror like yeah. there were no tr there were no trends uh the the torture porn thing i think uh, like Hustle well you're right came out saw, that year. saw four saw four came out yeah. october 26th that was the the big halloween movie saw four. yeah so it was yeah. a weird time i i don't oh sorry go ahead no, I was just going to say, um, November is when they dump movies. Right. Okay. Like, yeah. That's November 2nd, The Martian Child. I mean, wow. <laughs> um, yeah. Although, No Country for Old Men. I mean, they put movies that either are not well, going to do well. Like, Those are the Oscar like, bait. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Like Fred Claus. Uh, clearly Oscar <laughs> bait. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, um, Southland Tales. Yeah. Yeah. yeah whatever. It, it was it was an interesting time for horror, and by interesting, I mean horrible. So I don't know if people, I don't I don't actually know if this movie would have done better, just because I don't know how much of an audience this film would have had at any given time. It's yeah. just always very weird. It's like if you're gonna release a horror film, just do it, do it, especially if it, I, you know, it's fine if it's like sure. a if if it's a, a summer thing or like you know whatever. But if you're gonna release a horror film. And it, it kind of released it in November. Just put it out a, a month earlier, for the love of God. Now the week, the week it came out, it was competing with Walt Disney Studios' Enchanted, and I mm -hmm. would give a week's salary <laughs> to, to some to some projectionist the, the, the wrong now, to get to some some projectionist friend I might have who you know <laughs> would be in in charge of reversing the reels to to take the mist and show it to the audience that came to see Enchanted, which would be made up 100% of people like my wife. Oh, no. 
when when I was when I took my my oldest, I don't remember how old he was at the time when uh, um, Pirates of the Caribbean three came out. We're sitting there, and the open it starts opening, and like, uh, it was it was like Hostel two. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, I was like I grabbed him, we ran out. I said and ran down to like because it was way at the end of the the. Uh, Multiplex and had a rundown. Said you've got the you've got the hostile playing, and we come back and you see like all these stunned parents and kids just. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> well, yeah, uh, uh, I know we need to move on here. I will mention uh, since, since I I mentioned about being a projectionist, and back in the day when you had these thirty-five millimeter prints, they were huge. Uh, and when you wanted to play a movie in a different theater, it's not like now where you can just like load the hard drive in a different theater. No, you had to like move these prints around. And I remember coming in. <laughs> one morning and someone was very upset uh the projectionist was very upset because whoever uh whoever was supposed to move the prints the the night before uh they had failed to do that and so uh this would have been i think it was 2004 and if i remember correctly instead of the incredibles starting that uh, (laughs) lovely pixar film uh saw the original saw started playing oops which uh (laughs) which i believe starts with a body on the floor like you know a dead body uh, surrounded by like blood and stuff so yeah people were not happy but um anyways great times it's it's i think we've lost something by moving to digital and the most important thing that we've lost is yes. accidentally subjecting children lawsuits. to horrible <laughs> lawsuits exactly all right uh do we want to move on a little bit uh we sure. let's let's get into the the uh i had i had the crew first but let's actually let's get into our discussion of kind of the meat of this movie which is the characters and I will say, let's talk about the human characters first, because there's a kind of a major character here, uh, which is the mist itself. But maybe we can save that and the monsters in it uh, for last. Or we can do what we always do and just start talking about them somewhere in the middle. Um, whatever. It's fine. Let's let's actually start with a close personal friend, as we mentioned at the top, of uh, Paul's. And since he's the main character, it probably makes sense to start with him. Uh, but what do you all think of Thomas Jane as David Drayton. Well, well, first to clarify, I don't think he even knew who I was. But that said, That's um, what you think <laughs> every night, every night he goes on to Facebook, Paul, and he looks you up and he's like he hovers over the friend request button. And he's like, ah, no, there's no way he'd remember me. And then he shuts his laptop and goes. To bed. <laughs> <laughs> Did you bring donuts back in the day? No, I didn't. Well, there's your that was your mistake. I, I yeah. just I just brought you my learned. tuba, and that was it. Yeah, I learned. <laughs> you brought your I learned. tuba. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, but anyway, no, I, I really liked him, and I thought I thought he. Uh, it, I mean, it, you can definitely, especially by that ending, you you can feel the emotion in it, um, and it feels real, and it. Uh, I, I I I think I, he works he works in that character for me because he's kind of you know he, he yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm out of it today. Sorry. Yeah, no worries. I, I actually, I actually Sorry, have something I to say. That. What's that? Uh... Uh, never mind. Just, just uh... ignore me. It's best, <laughs> best to ignore me sometimes. Oh boy. <laughs> uh, that's fine. I'll just edit you out of this. Episode Did you miss entirely. what I say? You oh what my I say, god. Oh, <laughs> All right. Yeah, well, we got you again. <laughs> Woohoo! I thought it was <laughs> kind of <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Rewatching this movie. Okay, I mentioned that you know I've seen this a couple times. My opinion has kind of shifted. Uh, rewatching this movie, I actually kind of came to a conclusion about like what the movie's about, and mm. I think that like fundamentally, uh, you you could like look at this movie as being about like belief or the absence of belief or unbelief, mm. and so I think this actually 
like I started looking at all the characters kind of through that lens, and I think the the reason that David Drayton is obviously like the uh, the the main kind of character here is that he's a normal guy who he believes what he sees, but he also doesn't uh, he doesn't try to assign meaning to things. Like mm-hmm. he takes what he sees at face value, and I think that's kind of interesting. So, like, if he watched the movie, he'd be just like, "It's just a movie about giant monsters," right? That's, <laughs> sure. So that he would he would take the meaning of the movie as it's just a movie about giant right, monsters. Right? Yeah. Why are we? This doesn't yeah. require a three hour deep dive. So he would be completely inappropriate for this. <laughs> he'd be wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's he's definitely a balanced character. Um, yeah, I, you know, watching it this time, I start wondering. You know, it's like okay, now it's time to start thinking about themes and everything. Where you know you assign meaning that the filmmakers never in a million years intended. And it's like I, I feel like they break into three groups. You know, you've got the you've got the jihad skeptics who just refuse the evidence of their own eyes because they they can't accept that there's anything supernatural in the world. You know, hardcore atheists. You got their polar opposite, the fundamentalist whack jobs who see every fallen sparrow as evidence of, you know, God's wrath. And then you've got the folks in the middle who, you know, would kind of like to see a pox fall on both of them. But technically they're outnumbered because, you know, you're one third and and you're, you're stuck with crazies on both sides. So kind of a perfect distillation of modern politics. This movie was way ahead of its time. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, I, I started thinking, it's like, what's what's the flaw in everything, in, in each group, and, and and obviously the the first group led by you know his early nemesis, although he doesn't last long enough, is they just they can't conceive of anything beyond their own existence. They can't imagine any kind of supernatural thing or something, even if it's scientific. It's so beyond our reality it might as well be supernatural so they get eaten and then you've got you know we'll be talking about her soon enough we've got the you know miss carmody and everything and she sees everything as evidence of god god's anger god's wrath and we can't say she's wrong there's a little bit of evidence for it in here i think this is one of the things that differs very much from the book and we'll get to that um, but she's got the fatal flaw of pride where she, yeah, even if she's correct that this is God, he's not speaking through her. You know, she's not his prophet, even if, even if she's right that that's what's happening here. And then you've got the folks in the middle who they're just trying to survive. But what's their, what's their flaw? I start thinking, okay, faith, hope, and charity, you know, one side's got a lot of faith, um, None of them have charity. That I think the, the thing that kills them is when Carol pleads with them to go help her go to her children, and they turn her down. And, and their reasoning is perfectly good. I mean, you know, who wants to go out in the mist? There's tentacles. Um, but they turn her down, and, and that's, you know, suddenly they're, they're not as good. They're not, they're not the, the heroes that we were thinking them. They're real people. They're normal people. But of course, that was that was a big mistake, wasn't it? As things turned out, they should have gone with Carol. And if they knew it was Carol, Carol, Carol's like the one person who survived that damn show through all those seasons. <laughs> the woman should have been That's eaten true. about a hundred times. Yeah, you, listen, uh, stick with Carol or Daryl. 
So, so for those people who so for those people who don't watch The Walking Dead, he's talking about Melissa McBride as woman with kids at home in this movie. Woman no, is that with her kids really? At home. That's the name they gave her. That's the name they gave her. I apologize. Yeah. And she woman looks like she, well, she looks in, like in she's twenty fair, years old. Yeah, <laughs> right? it's amazing. Well, it. In all fairness, in all fairness, yes. Was this before or after the guy had gone out and gotten just cut in half? I can't remember. It, it, even though I just watched the movie, the guy um, had already gone to his car. I think so. They and, already knew there was something. Oh, out the there. first guy who went to his car. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he didn't go that far, and she was planning on going further. So, in all fairness, they were actually they were using what information they had at hand and looking and saying, "We know there are giant monsters out there. We know that." This guy didn't even get, you know, 100 yards and got eaten. Yeah. And she wants oh. to walk all the way home. Well, we're all going to do that. Too. Oh, if I were in their exact same position, that <laughs> is exactly the decision I would make. I have not watched Neither Living Dead 150 times without learning <laughs> that the cowardly asshole was absolutely right. They should have all stayed in the basement and they all would have survived. And they didn't. So they didn't. Moral of the story, when, when you're in a place that's relatively safe okay it's got a lot more glass than you feel comfortable with but even glass is better than uh air okay it's it's, it's a better barrier than air i think we can all agree on this statement um that's where you stay until you find something better maybe with less glass and more steel or brick but definitely you don't go out where the only thing between you and the monster is mist because mist is a bad barrier things Speaking just go all that right glass. through it Speaking yeah. of all that glass, have you noticed that modern grocery stores don't have those big glass windows now? They just they all watch this fun. movie. Exactly. I, I think that, ta- <laughs> that this movie's had a bigger influence than you know we might realize. Listen, I guarantee that everyone who's designing uh, grocery stores and convenience stores from pretty much from I think I think probably from the nineteen eighties on, in the back of their mind somewhere, they were saying this might be where I'm going to be holding out during a zombie apocalypse. And do I really want to have a lot of glass and exits and stuff? No, I do not. And, and in, so, in fairness, um, the grocery store they're in, it says, uh, you know, it, it says on the wall, it's just like uh, established 1967. So it, it was an older grocery store. So therefore, it well, yeah, glass, so. sure. Back then they were just like, put lots of glass in there. We got nothing to hide. It's a friendly <laughs> yeah. place. Let's see. Yeah, watch your neighbors shop while you drive by. Yeah, it was a different time. Well, I, I wanted to go back to one thing you said, Bill, where you said, well, this movie was really ahead of its time. I don't really think so, because this was 2007, so this was well post-9-11, and this is, we already started having the, the divisions that are even worse now. So, I think... Oh, I, yeah. And, and, and saw, the, so, I'm not sure if it was as ahead of the time as you... If you, I, you know, I saw an interview, I read an interview with Frank Darabont, where he's like, well, you know, this is sort of my reaction to the divisiveness of the Bush years. And I had to yeah. just start laughing out loud. It's like, oh, what I wouldn't give... <laughs> what we all wouldn't give to get back to those divisive years now. It's like, you had, you had no idea how good it was, my friend. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, not, there's, there's you know it's not divisive, though. Uh, I think I think uh, people's reaction to Thomas Jane as David Drayton. Sorry, Bill and I kind of wandered off into the mist there. Well, Bill, uh, Bill literally said... The reason uh, Bill yeah. literally said everything I have to say about this movie, so I'm just going to be quiet for the next two oh. hours. But, wow. <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, glad to glad to see we're on the same page, though. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I had I had a couple notes about Thomas Jane for just people who aren't necessarily familiar 
with uh, his his uh, I guess acting outside of this film and then out, outside of his uh, high school production that uh, Paul played tuba at. Um, so he I mean he's <laughs> man he's been he's done so many movies, uh, but he he did a lot of bit parts early on in his career. Uh, he he was in movies. Uh, God his 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 filmography for like the nineties. Uh, so he was in Face Off. He was in Boogie Nights. He was in The Thin Red Line. He was in Magnolia, and he was in Deep Blue Sea. Uh, people may also remember him from The Punisher. Uh, that was the really awful first Punisher movie. Although he's also in the uh, really great uh, Punisher movie uh, short film. Just go go look it up on on YouTube. It's the only good. It Punisher wasn't his movie. fault. The movie was bad, but the movie was. Uh, it's bad. not his fault. Yeah, <laughs> there are actually quite a few good actors in that movie. Um, well, Zach, yeah, also, yeah, don't you also you you had found? Did you not find you could see online his first film? Right? What was yeah. that called? Uh, why don't you tell me, Paul? Uh, I think it's a uh, <laughs> Padamati Sandhya Ragam. So uh, yeah, yeah, which we'll was a it. which was like a um, an Indian Indian. Um, I think it was supposed to be like a Indian version of uh, um, Romeo and Juliet, where he plays yeah. like a a, a a singing idol. Yeah, and we're not making this up. I I did not realize that this was. I think it was 1986 or something like that. Ni- 1987. So 87, it was. It was, there you go. it was only shortly after. You know, he he was appeared on stage and my tuba. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Inspired him to actually drop out of school and move to California. <laughs> yeah, which, but which is what he did. So go go check it out. You you uh you can find it. Just look up Thomas Jane first movie. It's on YouTube in its entirety. Uh, we just discovered this today, so we, uh, you can check out our deep dive episode in two weeks on that movie. Um, but in the, now, in the was, meantime, was he the he, was he the hero in Deep Blue Sea? Uh, was kind he of like the lead. I think I think so. Yeah, I think uh, it's been a while since I watched that movie, but uh, yeah, I think he's like one of the few people that survive. I'm, I'm amazed so. with all the with all the shark movies that you people watch, and and praise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you don't have Deep Blue Sea memorized because it's it's the dumbest premise of any shark movie. And yes, I'm including but it's so ones good. with two-headed ghost sharks and uh, everything. Yeah, yeah. Damn, that's bit, so good. Busy watching the good Foolish. ones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I actually like Deep Blue Sea, but damn, that's a dumb premise. Oh, we, a, yeah. we, we can increase the intelligence of animals. Well, let's do it with sharks. <laughs> great, great plan. The yeah, last animal I would give intelligence. Every knows you should uplift bears first. Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. So uh, it was kind of interesting, though, because Darabont, uh, you know, he's actually known for working with the same actors a lot. Like we mentioned, a lot of the actors who were in this movie would go on to be in The Walking Dead a couple of years later. Uh, but he actually hadn't worked with Thomas Jane before. He said that he kind of knew him socially, but I guess they had never worked together. But he did say he was the first actor that he sent his script to and I guess Jane accepted. So I guess that was kind of fortuitous. Like he had wanted to work with him. And I think Jane's kind of an interesting actor because he does have that kind of like every man quality to him. Like he's not just Hollywood pretty boy type, uh, but he he's got like real acting chops as well. Like, I mean the fact that, you know, he was in movies like Boogie Nights and the Thin Red Line, like he was being cast in very serious films. And he was also being cast in movies like the Punisher and uh, Deep Blue Sea. But um, I think it's really interesting that uh, I think he was an interesting choice for this character because this character does need that everyman quality to him. But at the same time, like he he can't be boring, right? Because he is the kind of character that we're with for a majority of this movie. So I I think he acquits himself well. Um, 
you know, yeah, like you say, he's not he's not unrealistically gorgeous for artists because they're usually pretty homely. And um, <laughs> you know, just I, I did like the part at the very beginning when it's like, oh, cool. So this guy is the one who did the poster for the thing. Well, I like him now. That's yeah, all it takes. Yeah. Oh, also, he's nice to his wife and kids. Also, icing on the cake. But the cake is, he did the poster for the thing. I don't know. Yeah. I, actually, I thought that part was a little spot on. Too spot on, on the nose for it me. Was. It was. That, and, it was. And then he's, he's doing... Fan. Yeah, and he's yeah. doing the, the cover for the uh, um, the, the, the gunslinger. Yeah, the, the Dark Tower. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, for, for those who aren't familiar, uh, all the art was actually done by... Uh, Drew Struzan, I think his name is pronounced. Uh, he's done like a million famous movie posters, including The Thing. And I believe the Dark Tower one was actually an original for the movie. Um, but yeah, it's kind of funny because yeah. he's kind of a, a stand-in, I guess, for uh, Drew Struzan in this in this universe. Um, See, another thing... What, 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 what I just want to say, what would have been great is if the camera slowly panned over and showed that the poster he was working on was for uh, the remake of The, Mist? the Fog. Oh. And, oh. Then, and <laughs> then you can have like yeah. a trombone womp, 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 and, and everybody would laugh. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I think Darabont actually said that uh, not only is he he doing his art, I think he said that the set for that uh, that studio at the beginning is actually based on Struzan's actually actual studio. So I thought that was nice. kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting too. Like Drayton is, he kind of inhabits, like you were talking about the kind of different uh, social groups, Bill. And I think it's kind of interesting mm -hmm. because he, he kind of inhabits this kind of uh, mid-level, like uh, the, he's not one of the, I mean, he is a local, I guess, but the locals kind of, uh, they kind of like uh, snub their nose a little bit at him because they mentioned, you know, he's, he's college educated and he's an yeah. artist and it's obvious that they kind of look down on him. And he then, uses uh, a fork when he eats, yeah. you know, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Fancy lad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but then at the same time you have like the, uh, the Norton, the Brent Norton character who still kind of sees, I mean, he, I, I guess he thinks he's an asshole just because of other reasons, but he also seems to kind of lump him in with what he considers to be like the, the local yokels. So it's kind of interesting that like yeah. both sides kind of dislike him or disbelieve him for different reasons later on in the movie. Yeah. That, and that gets played up a lot more in the novella, that, you know, which is told first person. And so we're, we're seeing everything through him and it's, it's, which is really, I think the first person point of view is a natural for King because he gets to, yeah. you know, he is, he is a good storyteller. And I imagine he's a fun guy to, to bend an elbow with over a couple of brewskis if he still does that. Um, so, so you hear it through his voice and it's just like, well, this guy's just a better looking um, Stephen King here. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, if, yeah. You, if you've ever read his books, like half of his protagonists are just stand-ins for Stephen King. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and half the victims, I'm pretty sure, are named after folks he knew in high school who probably yeah. regret regret all those noogies and, uh, you know, wedgies that they did on young Steve King. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another thing, okay. uh, another thing I wanted to mention about uh, Thomas Jane, uh, speaking of Stephen King, uh, this is actually one of three movies that he had appeared in based on Stephen King's works, because uh, before yeah. this, he had started one of the greatest Stephen King adaptations of one of the greatest Stephen King novels of all time, which was 2003's Dreamcatcher. I don't know if anyone's seen that one. 
<laughs> like Paul has. That's all I'm gonna say. Um, actually, actually, that was Bill. Yeah, let me. Yeah, well, I was gonna say, Bill. I, I assumed maybe that was around when you stopped reading because that is uh, yeah. famously, famously a novel that he does not remember writing because he wrote it uh, when he was hopped up on painkillers from being run over by a, a van and almost being killed. So it's no excuse. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, you know, it's a good it's a good excuse to be hopped up on painkillers. It's a bad excuse for for novels. I see. I don't like his fantasies. Um, I have nothing against fantasy. Well, I, no, Dreamcatcher dream is being uh, unfair. Dreamcatcher is uh, more of a science fiction. That's the one about the aliens Ugh, that come out. Of, the, that's the even aliens worse. That come out of your uh, ass. Yeah. No, listen. <laughs> I, I Stephen King. Better out Stephen than King in. Writes amazing horror. He writes adequate fantasy. His science fiction is terrible. In my experience, I'm sure I'm going to get cards and letters and well, you could hire yeah. a hitman to kill me over a hundred times. But I, I just don't think that's a natural fit for him. His short stories, whenever they get to science fiction, it's like, well, these are the worst kinds of science fiction. You have one good idea and you just make a story around that idea and it just doesn't flow right. It's like, a... but okay. All right. Dreamcatcher. Yeah. Maybe I'll give him oh, a shot. Yeah. We agree. No, no, please don't. It's, it's oh, horrible. don't. Oh, okay. All right. I'll, the, look, I'll look, just resell I, I, this not, lot yeah, again. <laughs> not, not to get too far off topic, but the, the film directed by Lawrence Kasdan, uh, written by William Golding, starring him, a bunch of other great actors, uh, 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 Morgan Freeman. It is the weirdest piece of shit in the world because it has so much <laughs> talent behind it. But let's get yeah, back to a movie a that's pedigree. not a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, but Jane would also go on to uh, star in a, a film called 1922, which is based on one of uh, King's short stories. That one's on Netflix, I believe, if you want to check that out. Um, but I, I also thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, he's, he is a King fan, and he's actually been talking for a while about uh, wanting to adapt another Stephen King novel, uh, which I actually do believe is one of his most underrated books, which is From a Buick 8. I don't know if anyone's re read that one. Hmm. Um, yeah, which is actually kind of interesting because that, is, uh, that has some interesting correlations to The Mist. That's all I'll say about that. Um, okay. So yeah, I don't know. Any uh, Renee, do you have any opinions on on Thomas Jane in this movie, or any thoughts about David Drayton, the character, loving father? Um, I think you guys really described him pretty well because he was just kind of that dude, just kind of going along, you know, kind of going with the flow, not really thinking too far ahead. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, um, so eh, I don't know. I think. There was there were some parts where it, he kind of threw me off a little bit with his acting, so I, I guess I'm not really going to bring it up till later, like when that part comes up. Um, but yeah, um, overall, I think he, you know, he did he did a fine job. <laughs> well, Kevin. now I'm now I'm curious. Can you give us like, uh, or do you want to save it? Uh, either way is fine. Like, like which? <laughs> no, I'm now I'm very curious because I actually have oh. I I have, I think I think I have a point to make, uh, maybe off of your point. I, oh, interesting. I, yeah, it's it's towards the end, like the end. <laughs> oh, the oh, end. really? Okay. okay. See, I liked him during that part, but go ahead, go for it. Or oh, do we? Yeah, want, yeah, we, want, we, 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 we can save it if you want. Oh, yeah, just, save it for when we get to the end. Yeah, I was. I was yeah, going to mention. Curious. Yeah, I was just going to mention the fact that like some of uh, this is not the fault of any of the actors. Some of the lines are a little bit awkward, in mm -hmm. my opinion. And that is because I think largely due to the fact that Darabont was using a lot of uh, a lot of the dialogue from the book. And like Stephen King is one of those writers that like he's really good on the page, 
but then sometimes if you take the words or the lines that right. he, he writes and puts them in people's mouths, like in in a movie, they they start to be a little bit awkward. And that that was probably yeah. one of the things that I I found uh, one of the shortcomings of this movie is I think Darabont was sometimes almost like a little too uh, he he showed a little bit too much fidelity to the original work. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Bill, you yeah, can, yeah, yeah you, you read the story, I so. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, King, I, this, look, this is just the reality. People don't talk. No, I don't like it when writers try to make people talk the way they talk. Like, if they yeah. transcribed our podcast and actually wrote down <laughs> the way I speak, I would shoot myself because I would come across <laughs> as a complete inarticulate moron. And yet, yeah. when people listen to it, they're like, no, this moron knows how to speak. Yeah, he said it was just know. a normal moron. <laughs> right, right. It's it's like one of the worst things you could do. If you, you can always tell when when a newspaper or when a when a journalist doesn't like a politician, they just transcribe exactly what they say, and you can yeah. tell when they do like them because they clean it up. And well, that's what he meant to say. It's like no, he said nothing like this. Well, he would have if he wasn't, you know, senile, you know, or whatever, or drunk. Um, so you know. Yes, I, I like the way they talk in his in his stories, but that's not the way normal people talk. And I feel like the actors in this in this show, this movie, um, are good enough that had they been given a little more free reign, they could have made these characters seem a bit more real. They they don't come across to me as real. They come across to me as characters in a horror movie, doing the things and speaking the way that characters in a horror movie do. It's, this is a movie that has a lot of quiet talk. And I know this because we had the air conditioning on and a fan blowing out. And I had to put the TV <laughs> up almost to the loudest volume possible to hear some of the, you know, which, you know, you're trapped in a, in a building with a crazy person. You're not going to be shouting your plans from the rooftop. So it makes <laughs> sense. But what they were saying, although they were saying it naturally and you know, under their breath and speaking that way, it didn't ring true all the time. Uh, you know, and, and again, I think this cast could have done better. They got, I was reading some of the reviews and a lot of the reviews really came down hard on the cast. And, uh, I, especially, uh, Marsha, Marsha Gayhart. Oh, Marsha Gayhart. Yeah. I was going to wait till oh, really? we got to her to talk about her yeah. character, huh. but yeah. And I, but I, I think I she's blameless. Her. No, I think she's Oh, I don't think it's blameless. her. I don't think it's her. Yeah. But I, I was going to wait till we got to her to, to, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. To riff on, on Mrs. Carmody. So, well, if we, we've, I'm sure we'll have other things to say about uh, the the character, and when we get to the ending, we'll talk about him some more. But if we want to move on from Thomas Jane for the time being, although Bill, do, do we, is now an appropriate time to uh, talk about one of the one of the uh, one of the things that Frank Darabont removed regarding uh, a scene that he removed regarding David Drayton uh, from the story, which thank God he did. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, that he and uh, Amanda had a little bit of a thing. Uh, yeah, oh, uh, by a little bit of a thing, you mean they just kind of sleep together because David yeah. Drayton is like, well, my wife's probably dead. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, well, and in fairness, as it turns out, she was most sincerely dead. Uh, she was, but but we yeah. don't know if it was she was dead at that point. Yeah, Wait. no, you don't. <laughs> you don't. With all of everything going on, sometime yeah. in between that, they're like, let's hook up like literally yeah, like yes, right, yes like right the the scene after they find that the soldiers uh have like hung themselves yeah. they basically like sneak wow. off to the manager that's a turn office. on right there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. 
Hey, yeah. those two soldiers well, aren't the only ones that are hung. Ah! Oh. <laughs> which is actually, which I believe is the a name sh- of a, a show, show that Thomas uh, Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he has also started the show Hung, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is in the movie, he only banged her once. Oh! Oh, oh boy. Oh, too soon. Too soon. Too huh? soon. Well, Ooh. damn. Wow, uh, tough oof. audience. Uh, that was really good. Right, at least yeah, I didn't say it. right after he banged his son, but you know. We'll... Whoa! Oh, all right. Whoa. Let's move on here. Jeez, Paul! <laughs> Damn! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been a rough day today. I'm sorry. You know, oh, Paul, yeah. the, the solution to me being inappropriate is not for you to be more inappropriate. <laughs> I'm <laughs> saving you, Bill. That way they go, oh, wait, Bill's not, not as bad as oh, yeah. He's not the fittest uh, perv. I was doing it for you, Bill. Thank you. Oh boy! Thank you. All right. Well, you have you have forty eight hours to email me to tell me that you want me to take that line out. <laughs> but anyways, in the meantime, uh, let's move on to uh, another actor uh, who I would argue actually steals the show in this movie for uh, the portion of the movie that he's actually in, and I it's kind of interesting. Uh, this was an actor that uh, apparently he had somehow gotten a hold of the script, and his agent, I guess, called the production. And said that he wanted to be in the movie. And Frank Daramont says, yes, you are cast. He did not. I don't think he auditioned. I don't think he read. He just <laughs> cast him sight unseen. Hell yeah. And hell yeah, because this was, uh, you know, I mean, God, this is. I can't tell you how much I love uh, Andre Brower. He's uh, so so Daramont mm. was familiar with his work. He uh, he had previously done. I mean, he'd done a bunch of stuff. But uh, Daramont mentions glory and homicide life on the street. Which, by yeah. the way, is I, I God, I wish that show was streaming so that I could recommend that people go watch it. It is one of the greatest shows of all time. Um, but yeah, so Andre Brower as Brent Norton, who man's uh, brilliant. Oh, uh, now because we were talking about the delivery of the lines. Yeah, I don't think that Brent. I don't think that Brent Norton. Uh, some of his lines are no less awkward than any of the other characters, but like. This is the one actor that there's not yeah. a single moment I don't believe him. <laughs> like, yeah, he's, he's he's the voice of Darkseid in some of the uh, you know Superman Batman oh, cartoons. Really? Yeah, I mean, yeah, oh, I wow. believe anything he says. Um, <laughs> this guy, this guy, when you, if you see him in a serious role, you're like, well, this guy's about as funny as a hearse. And then you see him in Brooklyn Nine Nine. Yeah, and you're like, right. okay, well, I, I amend my opinion there. I mean, this he is just good at what he does. He's and a, he is. I mean, a, He's a definite improvement over the book. Yeah. Uh, the character, the character is, who's just kind of an annoying prat. And um, just, just clearly based on someone Stephen King doesn't like. You know, you know <laughs> probably, tell when you're probably, Stephen King. Yeah. Like, yeah. One of probably a, yeah. I was going to say probably like a lawyer that he, he knew or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's just a jerk and serves no purpose other than to, you know, die. And and it, it it's one of the things that doesn't really ring true that he refuses to even go look to see you know what's that they, they right. say they have something back there now this does go to what I say at least once an episode which is if you come across a monster vampire blob werewolf whatever do not go tell people that's what you found because they'll think you're crazy or in this case that you're trying to make them look stupid. I, I don't know the premise of this whole gag is like they told me to go back and there was a tentacle and I went back and there wasn't a tentacle. <laughs> okay, yeah, this uh, you've been punked. Not really. Uh, not no effort at all. But um, you know the, he he manages to play it across. It's an interesting choice that they don't explicitly 
say that this guy figures this is just a bunch of, you know, crackers trying to put one over on the successful black man. But there's an undercurrent there, and it's a believable element to put in there. It's one more one more thing that would, you know, make him resist them, you know, go, going along with them. He actually oh, it really, makes it this really character does, it, likable. And, and, but it Sorry. really does feel like that, going back to that, why he doesn't go back to him. I think it's just even, like, just one line. They're like, why would we do this? And he's like, really? And just the way he delivers that is like, yeah. you, you yeah. pick up the, the racial undercurrent there and also the fact that there was already issues between him and, uh, you know, Drayton and the... See, I got the more the feeling that he was he was treated as the outsider. And I think we had talked about it. You'd mentioned that earlier. That, that Yeah. Uh, was it you or Zach that mentioned that, that Drayton was an outsider, but he was also a bit of a townie? Right, and yeah. Yeah, and then, in, then in Norton the novella, was, was that's more. Yeah. yeah, no, sorry. And then Norton is, the, is definitely more of an outsider. I mean, both now both yeah. him and Thomas Jane, both him and Drayton, also live in big, fancy, nice homes. They're not oh, living yeah. in the, the shitty part of town. Yeah. So all the re- more reason that they're kind of there's some resentment there from the more working class people. But like you said, I think his delivery just it's just one line. He doesn't even he's just like really. I think it's even one word. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. But he's, it's just the look and the way he delivers it. You get that whole like you said that feeling that under current there um and, and, I, I, and where, I i also oh no go ahead go sorry i i buy actually the whole part at the beginning where there you know there's the tension there between them because of the 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 dispute um their their previous dispute and the fact is his tree you know his tree just smashed their um boathouse which i believe at least in our state it, it wouldn't affect his insurance anyway it would still be on drayton's but you know maybe it's different in maine but um Regardless, uh, but I like their kind of their, their their relationship there, where he's like, "Well, can I can I get a ride into town?" And that just that yeah. kind of like that grudging, like, "Okay, look, awkward." That awkward, yeah. but also like we're in a shitty situation. We're gonna kind of, yeah, kind of. We're gonna, which which that's the only problem is you start establishing that like, "Hey, it's a tough th- t- you know times are tough right now. We're gonna kind of we'll, we'll put aside our old differences." But then when shit got even tougher then those kind of differences came back it seemed there's 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 problems when a tree hits your car and there's problems yeah. when unholy hell demons are <laughs> lurking in them you know outside you and know, that's not, when pe- yeah, yeah that's people true. go tribal real fast when when the shit hits the fan but the one yeah. one big improvement mm. i think over the uh, novella is that i could believe that people would follow him you know, that, that this Brent Norton, when he says, I'm going out, and I'm going to go get help, and, you know, people should come with me, that there's actually people who go with him. Yeah, because yeah. this guy's got, he's got gravitas. He's got leadership qualities. You know, if this well, were, this is the, if I had to be in battle, this is the kind of general I want. This is the one telling me, you got to go charge that machine gun nest. I'm like, sounds like a bad idea, Sarge, but hey, okay, you say it so well. Um, you know, he's he's got that, and, and that... Um, that really works well. Unfortunately, he shuffles off the movie pretty quickly. Yeah, I think I think that's it's kind of interesting because yeah, he's he's supposed to be a, a lawyer. He's obviously supposed to be like persuasive because that's his job. And casting Andre mm. Brower in this role, and Andre Brower, I mean, he could, I mean, you know, he, he could sell anything. I mean, he's yeah. just the, something about the way that he talks and the the cadence of his speech. He's just. He has this like very natural authoritative 
kind of uh, quality about him. And so I, I do love the fact that they 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 do make it so that he's a you know if you didn't know him he's not necessarily a likable character to to Drayton because obviously they've had their differences. Yeah. But if you didn't know him and he was trying to convince you of something, he he would probably could do a good job of it. So yeah, um, yeah I don't know. I think I think also like I like I I appreciate the fact that like in the novel he was sort of a creeper and he cut that out too. Because I yes, think that kind of under- undermines the character. <laughs> like, oh yeah, yeah. No, again, literally. It, oh, who, who's he creeping on? He's his uh, the wife, Drayton's wife. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. Oh. When he comes up and, to and the he, house and he's like, Drayton's like, oh, and then I noticed that uh, Brent's, uh, you know, eyes were fixed on my wife's heaving bosom and as usual. Like, <laughs> and, and he just lost his wife. His wife had just died of yeah, cancer. Yeah. So, so like you know, you were starting to feel a little sorry for him, and then he's like, just he's just a worthless character. But yeah, this guy, what a voice he's got, and you can enjoy hearing his voice again in the upcoming Scoob Holiday Haunt, <laughs> or maybe not. Yeah, I was or maybe say, that not. One that got, yeah. Yeah, that got axed. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's on a double feature with Batgirl. You can. Look oh forward to that my god! In heaven, maybe. <laughs> Oh, well. Yeah, and Darabont Der- also mentioned the the fact that it, it like he did like it wasn't even intentional for the character, but the like having Brower casted as, as this role did kind of give it the undercurrent of like yeah, these people are in Maine, a, a state that's you know pretty damn predominantly white. pretty damn white. Um, and you know King writes about this. Uh, you know he it wasn't in the story, but he 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 has characters quite frequently who are kind of racist. Um, and so Darabont did mention that this kind of unintentionally gave an interesting side to this character where, yeah, basically he's probably had to put it like, he's a very, very successful lawyer who still has to put up with shit from a bunch of, you know, yokels just because he, you know, he stands out. So I think that is kind of an interesting element to this. I, here's the thing that puzzles me though. They go out of their way to show that the tentacles, once they've been separated from the monster, dissolve into goo. So... Why did they set that up and not have the inevitable where it's like, look, I'm going to prove it to you. Come back here. And it's like, oh, yeah, there's there's a pile of goo on the floor. Uh huh. Yeah, whatever. I mean, well, I think I think it's I think it's because they they did convince the other characters who do go back there. So they they needed uh, other people who were who were convinced because the, uh, the manager. Okay. Yeah, because it, it disappears after that because they they see the tentacle and then they poke it and it's still alive and then it dissolves. So because because no one that that was like Brent Brent Norton uh, has the the whole thing about like well I don't believe any of you because half of you are drunk one of you already hates me you know right. so there there's no reason for him to believe any of those people but um, yeah I did I did I mean I love that uh, like he said like that I I feel like his uh, his performance gives a whole like it, it lends an air of believability because it's. Yeah, it was kind of hard for me to buy in the original that he's really just this much of a kind of stubborn asshole. But, like, Brower just plays him so well. And it's like he, he again, like, he's convincing me as a member of the audience that he, like, he has good reasons for not even wanting to, uh, what he thinks is basically, you know, playing their game. So, I also want to give a shout out to the um, the tall, thin biker guy who goes with him, the one who uh, they tie the rope around. Yeah. I like well, he had yeah. only like a couple lines, but I just like his delivery and I, I I like that attitude. He's going with this guy, but not because of any particular, you know, anything he said. He just thinks this is probably the best course as well and 
Yeah, why not well, tie the rope around me? Won't hurt. He's got nothing to prove. Isn't he going out to get the gun though? Yeah, that's true. He's going out to get the gun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, He's got well, guts. He's got guts, and we see him. So we see him. <laughs> uh, one one last thing I actually wanted to mention about Brower before we move on. Uh, so not only is he a brilliant actor, but I think he's actually uh, uh, maybe pretty brilliant when it comes to like storytelling overall. Because uh, something that I thought was kind of interesting that I found. Uh, so I've, I found the script. I hadn't read the script for the movie. Uh, it's pretty much one for one. Like there are a couple of lines here and there that are different, but it's the the script that I found, which was dated 2005, is pretty much the shooting script, except for one part, and that's the uh, there's actually a prologue that takes place at the Arrowhead project, and it basically shows nice. the storm uh, like hitting this installation as they're trying to open this portal and the portal, they're trying to shut it and it basically doesn't shut. And I thought that was oh, kind of interesting. Thank this God is not... they cut that out. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God they cut that out. Um, because it's, they should have kept on going and cut out almost every other reference to the arrowhead project as well. Uh, in my opinion. No, I now yeah, see. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, I yeah. actually disagree on that point, but I think that that, that like having that as the opening sequence would have been weird because that would have been the only scene in the entire movie that's not from the perspective of the characters. And I think actually it, it's better that we like, we hear what the characters think happened, but as audience members, well, I mean, we, we, you know, I know because I've read the story and all, but like, we don't know for sure. And I think knowing, knowing things that the characters didn't know would kind of take us out of it a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But the reason, the reason I mention it now is uh, because I mentioned Darabont cast Brower sight unseen. Apparently he didn't even meet him until right before they started shooting. And he said that he, I guess they had lunch or dinner or something because he wanted to like get to know him a little bit before they started shooting. And apparently Brower just like unprompted told him, hey, you should cut the opening scene. <laughs> and Darabont, apparently Darabont thought about it for a little while. And it's like, he came to the conclusion that, yeah, he was right because it didn't actually add anything to the movie. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Like just just the fact that he's not only an amazing actor, but he has like that sense of like storytelling, and he could have he identified that yeah, that scene actually didn't really belong. With he's the rest ballsy of the movie. too. You just you told that to the guy who has well, his number one <laughs> right, but that also, movie. also but that also brings up his his you know his gravitas. If Andre Brower told yeah. you, you know, but you know he yeah. he'd also do it True. like really kind of low key too. It would just make sense, you know, that you you need to yeah. you need to cut that front scene. You know, yeah. he just, he just and, it's a matter of fact, he's just very, he would just kind of, he would just say it that way, like, you know, you really need to cut that. Right, and, right. And you would, Whereas you'd if, be like, oh, fuck, yeah, you'd just see it, you'd be like, oh, yeah. yeah. If Toby Jones did it, he'd be like, shut up, you little homunculus, you dumb. <laughs> hey, hey, no, <laughs> we'll, we'll get to Toby no. Jones in this. I, I love, love Toby, Toby Jones, Jones in this. I love, I love Toby, Toby Jones. Yes, and he, we'll pick up Toby yes. Jones. Yeah, well, he he's no so Andre Brower, though. I mean, listen, they didn't, <laughs> well, Toby Jones, Toby Jones is not the voice of Darkseid, now, is he? <laughs> no, he's the do- uh, voice of what's the, the 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 computer guy who gets the Nazi computer guy in in uh, Marvel. So yeah, he he's he yeah, plays right. uh, uh, Arnim Zola. But uh, yeah, really sure. quick, before we move on to another main character, since you mentioned him, Bill, I'll just mention really quick uh, Brian Libby as the biker. I really like him. I thought this was kind of interesting though. So uh, Brian Libby has been in all of Frank Darabont's films, including uh. this one. Um, but that also includes his very first film, because I'm not just talking about Frank Darabont's feature films. Now, he was in uh, Frank Darabont's very, very first film was a short. It was, I believe, about a half hour movie uh, came out in 1984. It's called The Woman in the Room. 
And this is also very notable, not just because this was his first movie, but also because this was actually based on a Stephen King story as well. Uh, This is a story that I believe appeared in Night Shift. And uh, so Frank Darabont had literally started his career with a uh, an adaptation of a uh, a Stephen King story, and Brian Libby was in it, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Cool. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. So the woman in the room isn't that was that one of um, Stephen King's Dollar Babies? You guys, I I know at least Bill, yeah. you are familiar with the Dollar Baby term. Yeah. Yeah. So these are I these think... are where Stephen King basically says you can have the rights to. Is it is it indie filmmakers or is it what's the what's the stipulation on I, it? I think it's just anyone who yeah. I, I think it's anyone who either hasn't made a film or isn't an established filmmaker. And I think there are rules around like you can't like make a you can't really make money off the movies. But yeah, I, I think this was actually one of the first ones, if yeah. not the first one. Yeah, because he has a, he has basically a, it's is it's a series of his stories, right? He has a sort of list of stories yeah, that you can use, yeah. and you get the right for just a dollar, I believe, and that's why it's called a dollar baby. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I thought that yeah. was kind of interesting, and that's that's why if you go on Stephen King's, I I mean, if you went on Stephen King's IMDb, he'd already have like a hundred credits for all the stuff that's been made out of his movies, but or yeah. out of his stories. But uh, that's why he has like several hundred, uh, you know, based on a story by credits because. He has just dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of these dollar babies that people have made over the years. Cool. Well, uh, do we want to move on to arguably the, uh, I guess you could say, the leader of uh, the third group that, uh, you know, as Bill kind of described it? Uh, do we want to talk a little bit about Marsha Gay Harden as the lovable Mrs. Carmody? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd, I'd kind of mentioned, and I think we, we talked about it. We don't really, can't really blame her for this because I think it's the way the character's written. Uh, there's just I, for me there's no subtlety there at all she's just a mustache twirling villain from the get-go yeah and, and, and I, no, I mean I, I think it no, would work I, better I if believe, there was some more that. subtlety to it yeah yes I think if there was some like you know it, there were there's I mean it's, it's a compressed period of time but still there's it's just like she's like from the get-go she's like that and just it yeah. to me it was just too flat and and too too much of a cartoon character really and again i don't it's believe not her for a minute character. anybody would follow her no yeah well, exactly can, can well, i actually except, jump in except can, for except can, for <laughs> when right before her final scene that's like the first time to me there's that character has a little more something to her where she might get somebody but go ahead zach you were gonna say yeah i wanted to jump in here because this is this is a very interesting character for me and and in terms of like how i watched this movie because uh, when i watched this movie when it first came out i was a hundred percent on board with everything you guys are saying because i was like this character is so ridiculous so over the top she seems like she's just a crazy person i, I found it completely unrealistic that anyone would listen to what she's saying and for a moment take her seriously uh, and then I lived through the next uh, nine years, <laughs> or what? What has it been? Oh no, I guess it's been like fifteen years. And I lived, yeah, through the like the next fifteen years uh, of American culture and society. And it, <laughs> when I rewatched this movie recently, I was like, man, this is very realistic to me because what? I'm not kidding. Like I understand what you're saying about like the the timeline. Yeah, it's it's like basically what like a day or two that they're in there, and all of a sudden she has a bunch of converts. But, like, the idea that people can turn to 
these uh what are you know she's basically this zealot who is borderline insane and saying things that are outrageous and ridiculous in a time of crisis suddenly that resonates with me <laughs> for <laughs> well, I'm not going to you know go ahead uh, well, I see the thing is like I think I go back to when this was shot this was 2007 so it was it was a, a decent distance from 9/11 but still awfully close and I I was I didn't not one so much about the, her followers that was bothering me it was her and her who who she was uh, now if they had shown her being a little bit religious or a little bit you know it's just but still like a decent person and then changing because that I can believe cuz 911 I remember seeing that I remember seeing people who they were fairly reasonable and then after 911 they just became foaming at the mouth you know uh, islamophobic and so forth like 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 a, like they had just snapped and if they had shown that where they'd showed where she was okay and then snapped but they didn't she was like a piece yeah. of shit like even before the, yeah. the she was the, unlikable the uh, a charismatic fanatic fine i yeah. mean that's that's a dime you know very very likely and again go back to the original story one of the problems is that Oh, you know, Elizabeth, uh, Marsha Gay Harden is a year older than me, so she's way too covered in the dewy newness of youth to uh, to play this character who's, what are you, what are you chuckling about, um, who in the story is this elderly woman who has like an antique shop and is known as kind of like the, the local hoodoo root doctor sort of thing. She's got like old wisdom. She remembers... Oh, I remember that. You know, she's she's the one who will tell you about weird things that have happened. So she's the character in a horror movie that you would go to if a werewolf suddenly showed up because she's the she's the the you know, the, the savant, the one who knows these things. Sure, she's a little crazy. You'd be, too, if you had all these secrets and everything. So it's not unreasonable that they would give her some credence. And in the story, very early on, she's like aware that there's something bad out in the mist and she's telling them death is out there and and she's not you know it's not necessarily a religious thing it's more like this has happened before in 1901 or something and she's old enough that yeah well maybe shit happened back then so you, you can see where people are, are, are kind of going to her not so much from the religious thing yeah that that comes into play but it's more she's an eld she's someone who knows things this character doesn't know shit and none of her, you know, oh, she predicted that would happen. She predicted that if they went out into the mist, people were going to die. Yeah, I think everyone could have <laughs> predicted that. Nostradamus. I mean, yeah, you know, there's there's not much doubt. We saw it happen with the rope and all. She hasn't really done anything to make make you believe that she, that she knows anything, except for one scene, which is very, very smart in this movie. The one thing that, the, that I don't believe is in the, the story, um, where the nasty little giant mosquito scorpion thing lands on her and because mm. she just lifts up her hands and puts her faith in god and is completely unthreatening to this thing it just like eh, and flies away and anyone who witnessed that would be like maybe god does like her a little more than the person who got stung in the throat and died of anaphylactic shock um that was a cool scene and it would also reinforce in her crazy mind that she is God's chosen one. So that was a smart move. And and it, it plays real because, yeah, I, you're watching and you're like, well, yeah, the thing doesn't bite her because 
just like if you're swatting at a hornet, he's going to sting you. Uh, most people, when giant scorpion monsters land on them, I know I would shriek like a schoolgirl and probably flail around with my hands, and I'd uh, get stung a thousand times. So, but other than that, there is no reason why they would follow uh, Crazy Pants Woman here. Making her <laughs> young, making her young, took away that wisdom that you might she might have. She just looks like a crazy Karen. Well, She's, she is. She does. She does say some things. She is right about some things beyond just saying "don't go into the mist." And yeah. I think that's actually like the reason that I kind of like this character, or the reason I love to hate this character, is because sometimes like the most dangerous people are the ones who are right for the wrong reasons. Oh because yeah, sure. She because she, she does mention like she mentions. I believe she has a line before the bugs show up. She mentions something about like you know they're gonna something's gonna come in the night and they're gonna take someone. And the bugs do get in and they, you know, they sting the, the girl and kill her. Mm -hmm. And it's basically, she does keep saying, she basically keeps making these kind of vague prognostications. And when they appear to come true, then more people kind of come over to her side, which that's the thing that I do kind of find believable. Um, you know, it, sp speaking of like belief, like, uh, you know, if, if uh, uh, Drayton only believes what he sees and what he experiences and doesn't try to ascribe any, you know, bigger meaning to it. Uh, Norton doesn't want to believe he refuses to, he refuses to even be shown evidence. Like he doesn't want to believe yeah, anything. Right. Uh, Carmody, Carmody believes uh, wholeheartedly. She's from the very get go. She believes that something supernatural is happening. She just believes it for, uh, you know, probably the wrong reasons. I mean, she thinks this is a purely kind of biblical thing. And I guess, you know, you could argue maybe, yeah, maybe there is a, a higher power, except knowing King, like this is, that's not really what this is about. But uh, she believes sh she totally like a hundred percent buys into this just for all the wrong reasons. And uh, not to get like, I know the last thing anyone wants to hear about is like, you know, COVID and the pandemic uh, because everyone's trying to draw metaphors to that. But like, I couldn't help but think like, okay, you know, uh, Drayton is basically a majority of people. He, he believes what he's, uh, uh, you know what's put in front of him, what he what he's told, what he has, uh, you know, reason to believe. Um, Norton is, uh, you know, the the people who don't want to believe. They're like, oh yeah, COVID nineteen. There is no such thing. It's the it's a you know the common cold, whatever. Uh, and then Carmody is the sort of person who's like, oh yeah, of course, you know, there's uh there's a pandemic. And it's COVID nineteen, and it was planned by the New World Order. You know, right. so it's like <laughs> it's, it, there there are people who will who will like they will buy into something, and but then. They will veer over to the, you know, take a mad right and be like, oh, but it's because of this other thing that is totally made up in my mind because I'm, you know, maybe crazy. But, but you know, Sorry, you see, so. this is this is why I, I dislike the whole Project Arrowhead thing so much. It's that why shouldn't people think that COVID or any other bad thing that happens is because of the New World Order or the corrupt government, the secret scientists and everything else, because every damn movie that we watch that has any bad thing happen, it usually <laughs> turns out that's exactly yeah. what it was. <laughs> so why are we shocked? It's it's the default value. If you're in a movie, you'd have to be a dummy not to realize that the government's behind it all. So you know, it's not. It's it's become. It's not only. It's been lazy writing for a while. Now I think it's irresponsible writing. You know how how about some things where scientists actually uh, fix the problem? instead of being the ones who caused it. Shit happens. It's not always, you know, the government's fault. Listen, no one, nobody despises the incompetence 
of our governments around the world more than me. But uh, it's the the Project Arrowhead thing. See, and, and I just say, King is perfectly willing to have supernatural stuff. I mean, he's got vampires running away from crucifixes. I mean, you know, he's, he's okay <laughs> with that. Um, holy water makes you glow. I love that. But, you know, and you can argue it's, uh, oh, I don't know. Why. The vampires, vampires are, are just about, having a vampire in your story is, is you might as well have Jesus. <laughs> they're so, they're so <laughs> religious. Every now, they try to do non-religious vampires. Oh, there's a perfectly scientific reason why they don't like silver sunlight or prayer. Okay, whatever, dude. Yeah. Enjoy it. Um, but it's so obvious that, of course, they were... Project Arrowhead ripped a, fabric, a hole in the fabric of time and came out. I think it would be a stronger movie if we... That was speculation. Because, naturally, having watched movies, people are going to suspect that the army did it. But what if... What if Mrs. Carmody is on to something? You know, the Old Testament God, he's hes a kind of a hard ass. He's well, well able to, you know, hey, he gave us a rainbow and that was nice. Now, we, I guess we didn't learn our lessons. Now we get the mist. He has this water thing. <laughs> and um, these awful creatures, I mean, you know, they're right out of Revelations. The monks, so, flying but, but, scorpions, and yeah. Well, just, just sure. to clarify, so you're, you're, you're wanting to be a little bit more, uh, a little bit, Uncertain. Well, yeah, well, here's, here's the yeah, thing. Yeah, but, but, so the thing. Oh, oh go oh, ahead. Zach. Oh no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say part of it you have to realize one, this is Stephen King, and he often, you know, that's it's a Stephen Kingism. Yeah. Uh, you know, mm. I mean, look at look at uh, look at um, look at the stand, which you can't get, you know, good and yeah. good versus evil, but it comes from a government lab. Also, yeah. when was this written? What 1980? Yeah. Uh, right. And that was only what a few years after like MK Ultra came to light, you know, and and a lot of things like that, where it's like, oh, the government was doing shady shit, like you know, in that case, you know, granted, you oh, know, dosing oh, the government, yeah, yeah, the, yeah but it does I'm saying, shady so, shit all the time. Uh, right, but I'm saying, look at when it was <laughs> written. It was sort of the the late 70s, early 80s was when people started kind of realizing these things around, and so he's going to write. He was going to write that in. Now that doesn't mean that. You know, the movie wasn't produced then. It was produced in 2007, right? So, yeah, making it, I guess, it would have been it would have been interesting, like you said, if they made it uh, a, a little less, you know, a, a, a little more ambiguous. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. Um, yeah. And well, I think it, I think it, I think it kind of it, like that. That's why I'm glad they took out the opening scene that was in the script because I mean, it's obvious, like like knowing King, re, like. Uh, and for other reasons I'll mention in a moment, like it's obvious what happened, but at the same yeah. time, like if you're just watching this without any context, you know, they, they mentioned the arrowhead stuff, but we're not necessarily a hundred percent sure that's actually what happened until they oh. do use that to great effect the because well, till the, or, well, I was going to say till the, the soldier kind of says like, yeah, we, they were doing stuff, yeah. but then that actually, that is actually used to great effect in my opinion, because there's the whole thing about them killing him, even though, yeah, he actually yeah, that's wasn't a, that's really a responsible. Good um, that's a good scene. So, but yeah. yeah, it gives it away. And of course, the ending gives it away, too, because if this yeah. were the hand of God, you're probably not going to be able to stop it with flamethrowers. It's not like God's going to be like, oh, they got no one told me they had flamethrowers. <laughs> Shit, I'm going to have to come up with plan B. So, Well, let yeah. me propose this. Uh-oh. Yes. Do you notice that in the end, after he killed everyone and his son, the mist went away? Oh, so, so the dun, sacrifice. Dun, dun. Oh, Renee, so you she are was a right genius. all along. <laughs> oh, Holy yeah, I never shit. thought about that. 
Yeah, because so nothing. Else, all the other deaths were accidental. Whereas this is like a you know, an, a, a, he an sacrificed his sacrifice. child. I wow. never. Oh. I, I, so I go tell Sean. Maybe she'll bu- like the movie now. All wow. they need is oh, a burning my bush. God. I've got yeah. to clean my keyboard because you just blew my mind. That is- yeah. Oh, oh, wow. I'm glad that's what. Oh, that, oh yeah. That is a whole new. I'm yeah, so that glad is a whole new read. This. That's in, yeah. That's good. I like see, that. See, see, this is how this podcast works. The rest of us just yammer on for like three hours, and then <laughs> Renee, like a stiletto, just sort of sneaks in and yeah. oh, and it makes us all look stupid. Which yeah. I, I like that though. I mean, that really does. Do. It kind of gives it a little bit more. You know. Damn. So if any you, yeah. if any of you kids are out there in some one of those horrible college film classes where you got to write some some you know story or whatever and and analyze films and everything, there you go. That's it. That oh yeah, mm, good one. Of course, your teacher's not going to let you do the myths. He's going to have to make you do last year at Marion Bad or something. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that there were. I I love that reading, Renee. I actually that I and now I I feel stupid <laughs> for never having thought of that. Nope. But, um, we'll yeah. thank you, everyone. Good night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna say anything else for the rest of the show. You, I'm gonna you don't need to. High. Ooh, you, you nailed <laughs> it. Yeah, you you made the highlight there. Uh, I I do think I think it was kind of interesting though because uh, speaking of like the the uh, the the comparison with her in the story. Like Darabont actually did add two scenes, I believe, with her, and the first one was the the scene where she's in the bathroom praying, which I thought yeah. was kind of interesting, because that that is actually an interesting insight into her that uh, she's not just putting on an act; like she actually believes what she's saying, right. which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, and then the other thing is her uh, is actually like because that kind of humanizes her, but then the opposite. Is I don't believe they actually kill the the soldier in the in the novella. Bill, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I and they like I said, yeah, I actually, skimmed through it, but I don't remember. Yeah, I think they added that because and and that's kind of interesting too because basically Darabont adds like arguably the most humanizing scene and the most villainous scene with her. I, I would argue in this mm-hmm. movie. So I thought that was kind of interesting that he he kind of added he kind of fleshed out this character as much as he could by adding kind of those two sides to her. I, th- I think he had to because in in the novella before we meet Mrs. Carmody we we get to know her because he mentions she's yes. the local colorful crank and you know she seems just like a he keeps mentioning her off and on she's just someone yeah. that everybody talks about and then well, by the time we finally see her and everything we've we've got this this idea in her head whereas in the movie she would just be just one more crazy person there yeah so, i think yeah, if that, I remember, that was good moves if i remember correctly yeah drayton in the kind of uh you know like you said it's first person so he's, he's kind of telling us a little bit about the background and i think he even mentions like you know she she owns like you said she owns the antique store and she uh kind of imparts wisdom and i think i think he mentions that like her uh, or his wife even like goes in there and she apparently kind of likes her uh, hmm. You know, even though even though she is a little crazy, so um, so yeah, I guess we kind of lose that. But then again, that's actually like that's all like the first I don't know twenty pages of the story, and I think it's good that they they kind of get right to the action in the movie. So um, yeah, so I did. If if you guys don't mind, I'm gonna kind of geek out just a little bit on some some King lore uh, because I thought it was kind of interesting, especially since Darabont is such a king head. 
and like mm-hmm. he he isn't just adapting these stories like without context like i assume that he probably knows uh, a lot about kind of the the king lore and we kind of we kind of know that because you know he intentionally has drayton painting the cover to uh, <laughs> a dark tower book at the very beginning of the movie um so uh the i think people have speculated i don't know if king has ever like confirmed this but uh, they speculated that the basically these things actually kind of exist in the greater King universe. So what we're actually seeing is uh, they're opening a portal in the story and in in the movie as well to this place that is kind of mentioned in other places in the King universe, because I think basically the idea is you can kind of travel uh, between universes. There are these places, I think uh, King refers to them as thinnies, which is uh, basically just his term for places where, the, the the space between universes is kind of thin and you can kind of travel between these universes. But um, if I remember correctly, in the Dark Tower books, he mentions that basically there's a space between space. I think he calls it Todash space. And it's if you want to go between spaces, you have to travel in this other space. And in this other space, there are things which are unimaginable and they all want to kill you. And people have speculated that these this is basically them opening a doorway to this Todash space and all the things are kind of spilling out into our world. So uh, there is like some some context. Again, like pe- this is, I think people have speculated on this. Uh, like I mentioned, I don't want to give too much away, but if you read from a Buick 8, which again is a very underrated book, uh, let's just say some some creatures show up in, in that story and uh, it's, it's not hard to imagine that maybe they're from the same place that these creatures are. So... Um, one other thing I wanted to mention about Mrs. Carmody before we move on, uh, another kind of King thing. She has a line, which I believe is not in the original story. And at one point she's giving one of her like insane monologues and she's kind of like talking about and to God. And she says, my life for you, uh, which is a very interesting yes! line. <laughs> yeah. Are you familiar with this line, Renee? I am because yeah. I do believe we have covered it not long ago. Um, but when she said that, I was like, holy shit, <laughs> I'd never yeah. picked up on that before. Yeah. So, uh, Renee, are you, are you, do you want to tell us about where that line comes from or do you want me to? Um, I would like you to, because right now I'm like seeing it in my head and I'm seeing, um, okay. my dude dancing on the balcony, but I literally cannot remember. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. I remember now. Yeah, well, well, in no, the Ashcan Man is the Ashcan. Uh, yeah, we're not talking about that version, by the way. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the other version. <laughs> no, uh, no, not that version. Somebody, that's somebody just say something no, no, but in my brain. But in general, no, just, just, okay. okay. No, no, but in general, it's, it's still the yeah. Ashcan Man, is it not? B- Bill's Holy Bill's shit. very lost. So yeah, so I've got I've got question Scar- marks coming out of my head. You don't think of Alexander Skarsgård dancing when you think of the stand? Uh, well, we also the name of the character is the tra- the, the trash can man, and we also don't want to talk about uh, the the person who played him in that show. Um, so no, no, no. We're, uh, Matt Frewer plays him. Oh my in, yeah, god, the good version. Matt Frewer. We'll plays about Matt Frewer's good. We can talk about Matt Frewer. So tra- he was as far great. as I know. I am. Yeah, so I am so. You, you, you know okay. how lost the average viewer is. <laughs> okay. Like I'm, this this character who I'm not going to tell you about, played by an actor whose name we will okay. not speak. Okay. Jesus. <laughs> okay, so let me let me let me clear it up for Bill and for Thank every you. other for other twelve <laughs> listeners who have no idea what's going yeah. on. So my life uh, for you is a line that is oft repeated <laughs> by a character named the Trash Can Man uh, from Stephen King's tome, uh, The Stand. Uh, and uh, yeah, so 
the interesting thing about this, though, the reason I mention it, not just it's not just a little Easter egg. This is uh, where I, I actually have a, something that I'm getting to here. Um, so Trash Can Man is he's when he says this line, he's uh, he's kind of speaking to the character of Randall Flagg in the stand, who is the kind of big bad who is, uh, you know, presumably he's done something to create the uh, outbreak that kills all the people or almost all the people in the world. And he's kind of assembling an army of the people that are left over to kill all the good people that are left. So the interesting thing about this, though, is Randall Flagg is a character that shows up in a lot of Stephen King's books, including uh, under various names. Uh, he also shows up in the Dark Tower series. So I thought that was kind of interesting that um, and this is totally I mean, this is probably like Darabont himself probably just wrote this as an Easter egg. He's like, haha, because I love the stand. Um, so I'm probably reading this far, far more than <laughs> than I should. But I kind of almost saw this as if you're a King mega fan, you can almost read this as uh, Carmody is maybe inadvertently. I don't know. Maybe she's being influenced by a uh, a different entity, not God, but maybe a, a different, uh, slightly higher power. Uh, because Randall Flagg kind of he kind of goes around pulling people's strings. Basically, he goes around kind of, um, let's just say he goes around influencing people to do bad things and trying to create uh, chaos wherever he goes. So you could almost see this as, you know, maybe maybe there's something going on. Uh, again, probably not. Frank Darabont was probably just like, haha, I like this one <laughs> line. But um, I just thought it was interesting, especially since Flag shows up in the Dark Tower and we see uh, Drayton drying, uh, you know, some, some Dark Tower art. So anyways, uh, that's probably far too uh, deep of a rabbit hole. Bill, was that was that a, a clear enough explanation? Yes, yes. Okay. I just I just want to say one thing about Marsha Gayhart. She is yeah. just one of she's one of those actors who seems to have almost been made to be a supporting actor. Not mm-hmm. because she can't she can't carry a, a film, but she's so good at supporting actors that I think that's how they see her. She how many movies is she the wife, the girlfriend? the uh the head of the research department whatever she's not the lead but she in the best sense of the word i mean a good supporting actor supports the film the the film may rest on their shoulders Uh, she's really good at that she's pretty without being distractingly beautiful she looks like a real person she's a good actress without calling attention to herself and unfortunately those people don't always get the recognition they deserve she did win an Academy Award, I think, Best Supporting Actress for Pollock. Yeah, she played. I'm sure she played his wife. Yeah, so Mrs. They, Pollock. They cast her. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she, so, she was um, also she was also nominated for her. she was also nominated yeah. for Best Supporting Actress. She did not win, but she was nominated for Mystic River, where I believe she oh, played she, the part of Mrs. Mrs. Mystic River. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she is really, really good in in everything she does, and I I think she's fine in this. As the character is written, there's nothing else you can do with this. Um, yeah. You know, she played it the way it was written and the way she was told to play it. I don't know how you could say those lines and do these actions in any way that would make sense, really. So she did, <laughs> she, she ramped up the crazy. And, you know, you could, you could make the argument in times like this, these people, these are ordinary people. They're just average people. And they are being put in a crazy situation. The four of us would handle this better. Because, <laughs> or would we? 
Well, we'd either yeah. we'd either be like the ones who are duct taping steak knives to broom handles, you know, because <laughs> we've actually been planning this our whole lives, or or we'd also be hanging our we'd be cutting the soldiers down so we could use the rope yeah. to hang ourselves because <laughs> yeah. we're aware of how yeah. dreadfully hopeless this situation is. But either way, we're not going to be listening to crazy pants over there. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I, I feel like yeah, I feel like the thing that people always forget about horror movies is. Uh, generally, none of the characters know that they are in a no. horror movie until it's no. too late. <laughs> they are from a universe that does not have horror movies. Yeah, exactly. They are, or they are from spiders. A or <laughs> spiders. Because, and I'll tell you why. Because if I were, this is, okay, my biggest problem with this movie, my single biggest problem, the scene in the drugstore. Mm -hmm. Because it goes on, I think it feels like it goes on for 10 minutes. And that's about nine minutes and 45 seconds longer than any sane person would have stayed in that drugstore. As soon as you find the guy wrapped up in the cocoon with things crawling under his skin, bye. And then, and then spiders hatch out and, and they're being attacked by these giant spiders. And yeah, they got a gun and they shoot it. Okay, this works against Germans in 1943. If you keep shooting them, eventually the others will hold up their hands and say, okay, we, we surrender. Uh, but spiders will just keep coming at you. You know, you can blow away all the spiders you want. They're never going to suddenly, I think they're getting tired. Yeah, I think, they, I think they're getting the point here. They're going to stop attacking. No, they're just going to keep on coming and you don't have enough bullets. Get the hell out of there. Anyway, that's what I say. Yeah, I that was the one time when everybody acted stupid, like people in a horror movie, where they just it was clear this was this this whole operation had gone totally foobar, and it's mm -hmm. it's time to admit we did you know guys we gave it our best shot and we failed. Back to House of Glass and, and hope that they don't follow <laughs> us because I I'd hate for that crazy bitch to be right about that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on then. Uh, Renee, who do you want to talk about next? Because you apparently have the best insights of the night about this movie. Yeah. So. Oh, boy. Ah, um, the only person that keeps popping in my head is the, the guy we just you just mentioned, and I cannot remember his name. The little guy that was like the Toby. marksman. Toby yeah, Jones. Thank you. Yeah. Toby, Toby Jones. Weeks. I enjoyed yeah. him. I really actually really enjoyed yeah. him at one point. <laughs> Because that yeah. was that moment where you're like, oh. He's he's great. Do. And what a name. I mean, that name is straight out of like an Ayn Rand novel. Ollie Weeks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Every person named Ollie is like five foot two. And just to drive the point home that this is a mild-mannered, self-effacing guy who is no threat to anyone, let's, let's name him Weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Puny McSmallman, I get, you know, was was also in the running. Uh, that, that's that's a great name. And Toby Jones, Toby Jones just reminds so me. Good. He's like, like he's our modern day Michael J. Pollard. You know, he can play that. Oh role, yeah, that yeah that character role. Look, he's he's never going to be the leading man. It's it's kind of hard. But what I like with with this character though is he starts off. You're like, oh, it's Toby Jones. You kind of recognize him. He's playing that. He's he's a bagger. He's a bagger at the grocery yeah. store. But then he he's like, he's like, no, I'm I'm I was a marksman here. And then he we fucking he fucking yeah takes charge. I mean, he he's he's no no shrinking violet. And eventually, yeah, like you said, he he just says he had enough of his comedy. Puts <laughs> the shit out of her eventually. But oh, we're totally rooting for him because we all like oh, to yeah, think so, Thomas Jane, but we're a lot closer to Toby Jones. 
Well, I, I, damn, I'd rather be Toby Jones than this because he, (laughs) he fucking rises to the occasion with this. You know, he's like. Okay, he, let's not go he, too yeah. far. He gets eaten by a giant praying mantis. Nobody wants to be Toby Jones in the midst. <laughs> well, well, yeah, yeah, that part too. But you know, still, yeah. yeah. Although, interestingly enough, Bill, uh, he actually has played a leading man before because one of the things that I think uh, Darabont uh, mentioned having seen him in was the year before he was in a film called Infamous, playing uh, Truman Capote. So, which, oh, now that I've said that, right. I'm sure you can. Yeah, <laughs> like even if you even if you weren't aware of that movie, like you can yeah. definitely see as soon as. You hear that, oh, yeah. you can definitely like, picture Toby Jones. Okay, as now, in fairness, Toby Jones had exactly one shot of playing a leading man, and that was waiting his whole life <laughs> to hear, they're yeah. making a movie Truman about Truman Capote. <laughs> yeah. That's like that's like Andre the Giant waiting for the phone to ring because they decide to adapt The Princess Bride. I mean, you know, this is it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I love Toby Jones in this movie. I love the, I love. The, I always love characters who, like you said, Paul, like there's more to them than meets the eye. Since like when you see him initially, yeah, he's like a assistant manager at this grocery store. And then we start like he starts explaining like to Drayton, you know, what like their their uh the whole generator scene where he like they're kind of ignoring Drayton and Drayton's getting angry. And the Toby Jones is like, Oh yeah, you know, they're overwhelmed and they have a problem in front of them that they can solve. So they're trying to solve it. And it's like, wow. Okay. This guy is actually incredibly insightful about human nature. And then he, you know, he has some other good observations and then, yeah, we find out that he's uh, arguably the, uh, the, the best person to have on your side when there's a firearm available. So I thought that was kind of, kind of interesting that they, they make this unassuming character, uh, they, they give him some depth. Also, I got to say, I'm always, I always feel really stupid when I find these things out. I'd seen Toby Jones in tons of stuff. Uh, like you mentioned, Paul, he's in, you know, he's, uh, I think, Arnim, Arnim Zola from uh, the Captain America movies. I've seen him. I've, I've been a fan of his for years. Uh, I, I did not realize he's actually British. His name's Toby Jones. Well, okay. <laughs> no, but he, he does an American accent. Apparently, so... I, it's, it's, I guess it's just one of those things that never occurred to me that it was so easy for English people to fake yeah. an American accent. Apparently it is. Because we're, we're really bad at doing English accents. We either sound like pretentious <laughs> yeah. jerks like Madonna, or we sound like we're doing Monty Python, which may be our only actual exposure <laughs> to, you know. Yeah. yeah, so. But they're good at it. And then you see them on a talk show, and they're, they're sounding like, you know, royalty. It's great. Yeah. Well, so there you go. Well, just taking jobs away from uh, hardworking American actors. Well, we got to step up, folks. <laughs> All right. We'll love Toby Jones. Uh, Renee, Renee, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just let you keep picking here. Oh boy. Um, who else? Well, so yeah, who's left? Yeah, There's who's a left? lot of people in this grocery store. There's a yeah. shit ton of people, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. So this, the next guy, and we all love him, mm-hmm. Dale. Um, mm-hmm. Boy, was he not a shit stirrer that Dale? Um, what was his name in the movie? I was God. gonna say uh, you're Dan Dan Miller. <laughs> Thank you. And <laughs> he comes running in like, ah, there's yeah. something in the mist. Um, and then you know, getting people hopped up like, oh, there's there's nothing else. Yeah, ether. Which like, which oh. is actually I I actually love I I think that he was he he plays such a a minor role in this movie. If we, we were talking about Jeffrey Demon. Yeah. Um, who's, you, yeah. who's a, a, a longtime Darabont friend. He's been in all of his features, and uh, he would go on to be in 
a little show called The Walking Dead a few years after this. But I think that he was such a good choice for this role because even though he's not pivotal, that moment is so convincing to me. Because Mm -hmm. for me, like the thing about horror films, the thing that's really scary sometimes is when they don't show you something, but they show you someone's reaction to what's happening but that, that person is the has the scariest to, part. <laughs> yeah, they have to. But you, you you need someone that sells the reaction. And when he runs into the... I mean, he's kind of bloodied and stuff. And you can see that something happened. But, like, the the fear in his voice, like, it just sells that... Okay, yeah, this didn't. This guy didn't, like, you know, see a dog or something. Or, or you know, maybe a, a car hit him. I don't know. You buy the fact that this man is 100% convinced that he saw something that has scared him shitless. Mm-hmm. And it's so good. I agree. And, and, no, I thought he did his, a great. His job. eyes are great. He's got such expressive eyes. He can. Yeah. He can do great oh, yeah. acting. The 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 end sequence when you know he realizes what's going through the hero's head and yeah is the one who not you know gives him the affirmation. Yeah, this is the best course of action, which I disagree with. But, but we liked him. I forgot <laughs> he was in the Blob too. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Well, literally yeah. in the Blob. Yeah, you know, <laughs> he was the sheriff, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, he was. he was the sheriff. Yeah, yeah, he and Candy had a nice little thing going there for five minutes. Yeah, uh, he's a, he's a fun, he's a good actor. If if anyone ever wanted to make a movie with minimal dialogue, where the characters had to like ninety oh, percent emoting, it would just be just cast Jeffrey DeMunn and Andre Brower, and and you're done. Like, oh they, yeah, they can both do so much with just like a look. See, those are the guys you want to have when you're in like a, a quiet place movie, because they can, yeah. they can speak volumes just by moving their eyebrows around and rolling their eyes and like, yeah, I get it, good plan. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting too, Jeffrey Demun, because uh, just hearing about the like how they made this movie, and you know, I mentioned a little bit about how this was uh, just a huge departure for Darabont in terms of how he made movies, because he, like he he had disc- he had talked about all of his other work uh and especially his his two features that he had made before how he blocked everything out exhaustively you know he planned all the camera movements all that stuff and in this movie it was basically they had the two because they the the camera guys were and the cinematographer were from tv and the shield which is all handheld so they shot this all handheld and they always had two cameras moving around the set at all times and it was very fluid uh it was all handheld they would you know, move the cameras around instead of doing a cut. They would they would either focus, rack focus or move the cameras from one character to another. And Jeffrey DeMunn, uh, I thought it was kind of interesting. He said it was the closest thing he had ever done on film to doing a play, which I thought hmm. was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Can, because, I, can we go back to the, that that handheld camera? The handheld cameras. Yeah, that annoyed the shit out of me. I hate it so much. <laughs> they, they do the. They would do the zoom in, and it's like, no, yeah. no, that took me out of the film. It's like, no, you're not doing. If you were doing a straight, a full mockumentary, if you were, you know, if we were expecting cinema verite, that's great. But it wasn't. All of a sudden, there'd be like, and because they didn't do it consistently, it would like the handout camera, not so much. It was when they would do the zooms. Yeah, that would just. I was just like, oh my god, this looks like crap. It just pissed me off. <laughs> it took me out of the film. So this is this is one thing that I think I've consistently disliked about this film since the first time I watched it. I was I, I you know I didn't know any background. I I didn't know what to expect. I had seen, I think by by the time this movie came out, I had seen the Green Mile and Shawshank Redemption. So I was expecting the traditional like Darabont style, 
and I hated it so much because it looked so it well it looked cheap and here's the thing this is probably the only way he could have made this movie because uh the budget that he had and he was talking about how like sometimes they would shoot you know multiple pages in a day like consecutively which is very rare like they would shoot they would they they would get through the uh through the material so fast which he said that it would literally it would have been impossible to do that if he had try, tried to do it in the style of his previous films so on one hand like i guess this is the movie that he had to make and i'm glad that it's you know we have it and that he got to make it but on the other hand god if i could if i could uh, if i could go through one of these uh interdimensional portals to another universe where frank garabont had you know 40 million dollars to make the mist i would love to because i would love to, I, w- I would have loved to have seen the film that he made in the in the style of frank darabont so i don't know yeah i agree paul this is this is something that uh, i'm kind of conflicted i i i i just i hate the style so much i, I mean i actually hate it in tv like I don't even like TV shows that do this, and I get it that it's supposed to be, like it's supposed to. Like, and he even mentioned like, and I don't know if this was him rationalizing or not, but you know he did mention. I guess the the actors actually really enjoyed this though because they were the fact that they were all like Jeffrey Demun mentioned it being like a play. They were usually all in the scene because it wasn't just you know sometimes you have an actor saying lines and. The other, the other character might it might be like a PA throwing lines, feeding them, feeding them lines. Whereas here, since they were swinging around so much, like all the actors were pretty much always on the set. And like if you were in the scene or if you were working that day, you were on the set. And the actors apparently, they you know in the interviews that I could find, they all consistently said they actually really loved that because you always had the other actors there to to, to play off of. So I guess it's it was good for them, and I, I guess it was good for the production. I'm just. I just, yeah, I can't get over the style, man. I hate it so much. It didn't bother me as much as it bothered you guys, actually. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I, I just maybe I've, I, I don't like. I normally don't like that style. Uh, I just didn't think. Maybe I've watched so many of those police procedurals who do it to a ludicrous degree that uh, this one seems yeah. subtle in comparison. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I maybe I'm just like really sensitive to it, but. I uh, has anyone watched the the Obi Wan Kenobi show at all? Nope. No. I, I was I was so just enraged that show. I mean, it has a huge budget. Like it has a it has a, a budget high enough to make it look very cinematic. And yet, for some reason, even for scenes where it's just like people standing there talking, they have like this this shaky cam. And I'm just like, I do not understand why anyone would ever choose to do that. But I don't know. In this case, I guess Frank Darabont. You know, he had to make the movie that he could. And uh, so I guess I give him a little bit of leeway. I was going to say, I, I, I'm, I, the shaky cam wasn't the problem so much as the zooms. The zooms just seem so ridiculous to me. You know, they're, I mean, they're part of that style, but like they're not the entirety of it. So that yeah. was, to me, that was the main part of it that really kind of got I think, me. I think the zooms and the rack focuses were largely, that was actually what they had to do because because the whole oh, point yeah, is, I guess so, the style yeah. is you don't have to do a bunch of setups you just go you do a, a whole scene like very fluidly so oh that's anyways. true yeah i was gonna say i when you when you're when you have a film that by its nature is limited in sets yeah this is this is one way to get around that i prefer other ways i mean hitchcock made movies that were all set in one apartment and somehow <laughs> managed to make them interesting um 
but this is and you know we're you got to accept this is what people are growing up watching so it's it's becoming this handheld thing and this shaky cam nonsense is kind of the current language if it's, if it's what people grow up seeing on tv they expect to see it in their in the theater and it does strike me now watching some of the older suspense films how static the camera is that camera movement probably because cameras back then were bigger and hard to move that more story was told through montage than necessarily through the camera moving that's not always the case and it depends on the um, filmmaker kurosawa could do it so well that you didn't even realize it was happening until you went back and analyzed it but it is one one way to get around it I, I'm, I'm i'm fascinated that it bothered you guys so much i guess i don't know i just didn't really didn't really see that but now i'll be yeah. looking for it next time i watch this <laughs> yeah well hopefully we ruined it for you by mentioning it um, <laughs> i know i feel yeah. bad i didn't really either no, that's interesting, though. That's interesting that half of us <laughs> were very bothered by it and half of us didn't even notice it. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's not really the same thing and because it's it's a totally different situation. It's kind of a, uh, I guess, a, a, a decision of style. But, like, I'm also thinking about, like, some of my favorite uh, things, like TV shows that do the trick shot thing where they do a, a very, very long take. Uh, I'm thinking back to... You know, there's a. I don't know. Have you guys seen uh, the first episode, uh, the first season of True Detective? I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Do you remember the scene? Do you remember the drug the the drug bust scene? Nope. Okay. Well, there's like <laughs> I, one of my favorite uh, scenes in in TV shot. history. That there's a scene where Matthew McConaughey he's going in and I think well actually I think he's trying to like kidnap someone but. They have to like these guys are like going to steal some drugs from someone else. He doesn't realize it. He gets in with them and he's trying to like there's this huge shootout. He's trying to kidnap this guy. He's trying to avoid the cops and the people shooting. Anyways, the whole thing is done as one sequence. And it's so like even though the camera's moving around all the place, it still feels very cinematic. And so sometimes I, I just like if they can do something like that in one take and still have it feel very uh cinematic and unchaotic it just i don't know uh, anyways uh, i'm getting way off topic let's move on to uh we got a couple characters i think worth talking about real quick here so let's move on i'm gonna uh renee i'm gonna let's talk about one of your favorite characters from the walking dead oh my um, god i hate you <laughs> <laughs> but in this movie uh actually a, a, an actor that uh darabont had worked with before because she was in the majestic before this uh, but she would also be, go on to be in uh, The Walking Dead as Renee's favorite character, Andrea. I'm talking, of course, about Lori Holden as Amanda Dunfrey. What do you guys think about Lori Holden in this movie? I can say, I, I'll, let me actually start out by saying I hate her character so much in The Walking Dead. But <laughs> And I, tr- I, tr- I mention that all the time on the other podcast that I don't hold it against Lori Holden. And I got to say, like in this movie, I found her like far more tolerable. Oh, or not yeah. intolerable. I guess not intolerable. I should say, like I do, Andrea. So, yeah, she didn't seem to really do a whole lot. I know at one point it looked like she had a gun in her hand. I don't know if I just wasn't catching the angle. Maybe I was. Well, she, she had the gun in her in her. Uh, she did. Okay. Because yeah, I remember at one point just looking at the screen, being like, "Who gave Andrea a gun? <laughs> like this isn't a good idea. We know how this works out. Oh, right. God. Yeah, she was an annoying character in Walking dead uh, but she's fine here yeah. like you say she doesn't yeah. do a whole lot um, but she's fine <laughs> i would uh, honestly right. i wouldn't even know if she'd be worth talking about and it's no offense you know obviously i'm not talking about 
actress, but yeah. her character just didn't really move me like at yeah. all. Yeah, her that's that's you know, man, I almost feel like Lori Holden gets casting these characters that are just like not super remarkable. Like I feel like you could almost take this character out and not miss her yeah. at all. Yeah, like, no, it's honestly true. Like, I can't really can't even remember any of the lines she said. Like, nothing was really that memorable. It's like, well, she was there in the line, and, and yeah. she was there holding the kid, and, and she was there in the end holding the kid. And she was yeah, there. Say, yeah, I think that's her. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I, she was there completely unable to um, light a flaming mop with uh, yeah. an oh electric God. lighter, which, like, you yeah. know, come on. I mean, okay, so that's one of the... That's one of those things, again, that takes me out of a movie when you have such a tropey thing. Like, I can count mm-hmm. on my hands how many times in the last 10 years my car hasn't started. And yet, I'm pretty sure if I were chased by a werewolf, that would I would now be up to 11 because that's when it, it would start. <laughs> Why? Why? Because you need it to start uh, for, for a better reason than the usual. I, gotta, I forgot to get, you know, cocoa butter or something. So, yeah, it just... <laughs> It's annoying. I, I don't know. It's I, 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 I don't know. I think the, those lighters are pieces of crap, and I can never get them to work anyway. So, well, they're pieces <laughs> of crap. But you know, it was just. But, but cheap she actually she thing. comments on it though. She comments on it that I, she's like, well, that "Damn, childproof lighters." <laughs> there you go. So at least they, they, you know, they, they, what they is like lamp shading, right? Now what they call. Now it? I, I will <laughs> say it is very likely in a panic situation when all the uh, the adrenaline sends the blood from your brain down to your legs, where it feels it'll do more good. That is when you get real stupid and, you know, are trying to put out a fire with a fire extinguisher, not by pulling the pin and pressing it in this complicated way, but by hitting the fire with the actual fire extinguisher. I've actually seen a human being much smarter than me do this. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, there's that. But you know what? The suspense should not have been, will they get the fire started? The suspense should have been, do they not realize what a dreadful idea this is to be starting fires inside this thing where the best case scenario is you set the flying pterodactyl on fire. So now it's flying around inside your flammable building on fire. You know, I, I don't get that. <laughs> yeah. If you're being chased by zombies and you're throwing gasoline on them and set on, and you're setting them on fire, the only thing you've really accomplished is that you're being chased by flaming zombies, which are the only <laughs> thing worse than regular zombies. It, 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 it was a bad plan. Uh, you know, I mean, look, they're they, under stress. I think they mentioned that. Yeah, I think after the fact they even mentioned that, though. Doesn't a character mention how so they, what, what a bad plan it was? Yeah. Yeah. It, well, well, oh, sure. Oh, the backseat driver. It's like, oh, you think, Dave? Do you think it was a bad idea, Dave? What, what gave it away? The fact that, you know, we're now we're putting out fires and Sam over there is actually has third degree burns over 80% of his body. But yeah, give us the postmortem, Dave. Mm-hmm. Tell us what a bad plan it was. Shut up. Get out of here. You're useless. I also thought it was kind of interesting her uh, she had her, the one line that I thought was a little prophetic where she says, uh, I haven't slept all night. I feel like the walking dead. Um, I'm, that's a joke. Uh, by the way. You can that's, uh, oh, laugh through it afterwards. Oh, I was going to go back and see. If, wow. Is that just <laughs> like, really? So gullible. Um, yeah. Last thing, last thing I, I do have to say about Lori Holden, if we don't have anything else, uh, I did think it was kind of interesting or kind of coincidental uh, the year before this movie, she was in uh, another horror movie, uh, Silent Hill, which, if you're not aware, is based on a series of video games. And I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, the producer of uh, I found a quote from the producer of those games, Akira Yamaoka, 
who said, uh, we wanted to achieve something horrific and thrilling at the same time. He's talking about the uh, creating the original game. And he said, Stephen King's The Mist was a great source of inspiration for us. So I thought that was hmm. very, right. very interesting coincidence. Well, it is a very misty game. So. It is. Yeah, it is. Well, for anyone who hasn't played it, you, you're basically in this weird hellish town that is blanketed by this thick fog or mist. And uh, yeah, the, the inspiration is pretty obvious, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah, if your kid runs off into like a misty town, like somebody <laughs> will find it and turn it into the police. It's fine. Yeah. Just go home and wait. Especially if, especially if there are like it. air raid sirens going off, which I guess happens in this movie too. So yeah. yeah. I mean, you really, you know, if you say to your kid like this, okay, I'm saying your name one more time and I'm leaving you, like you just have to leave them. Yeah. It's time they to are, learn. That, chi- that child is now Pyramid Head's child, and there's nothing exactly. you can do about it. So. Yep. Your ward of the state, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, let's move on to one of my favorite character actors of all time. And I think he does an amazing job in this film. And I'm, of course, talking about Mr. William Sadler as Jim, who another uh, actor. I'm actually kind of surprised William Sadler didn't show up in The Walking Dead because he was another actor who's been in all of Darabont's movies, all three of them. Um, I love William Sadler so much. I mean, uh, the, just the fact that he, he usually, he very often plays these kind of, I don't know, kind of like rough around the edges hit characters. But then mm. you also remember that he played the phenomenally hilarious uh, Grim Reaper in Bill yeah, and Ted's Bogus Journey. Oh which, which is just yeah. like a total, like the fact that he played that character as this, like a uh, uh, parody of the seventh seal and you, you know, the two people that would have gotten that were probably thought it was hilarious, but. <laughs> oh my God. Like, yeah, I just had, Oh, I completely forgot. Yeah. It, I, 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 I always forget. Like I have to remember, like I watched that movie recently and I was like, wait a minute, who is this again? And then he shows up, he actually shows up without makeup and then, I'm like, Oh, that's right. It's yeah. So uh, love him so much. Um, I will mention like in the context of this movie, uh, he's actually a very interesting character because, you know, getting back to what I was talking about with uh, just this movie being about belief, like he he kind of has an interesting turn because he starts the movie off uh, when when Drayton is trying to convince them to go back there or he's trying to convince them that he, that he heard something and not to go out. And he, he literally at one point just threatens him. He's like, yeah, you better cut your teeth before you say anything else. Um, so he doesn't believe Drayton. And then he obviously he sees the, he sees the monster carry the kid out. And then like pretty soon after that, he's right there with mother uh, Mrs. Carmody saying amens and, you know, singing expiation. Yeah. So his character, like he is actually kind of interesting because he goes from refusing to believe to again, like believing, but then taking that belief and using it for uh, the wrong thing, in my opinion. And so, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. I, you know, and that, that rings true to me because one thing I've observed is that a lot of people who, I don't want to draw generalizations, this obviously isn't true for everyone, maybe a majority, but a lot of people who poo-poo any, like, basic religion or, you know, common religious beliefs are some of the most gullible people I know. You know, they'll think that crystals have magic healing powers or something like you realize how, I mean, I don't want to say that's any more insane than anything else, but, you know, with the fact that you're you're so proud of your ability to see through the nonsense of organized religion, and yet you've allowed yourself to just get totally suckered into something 
even even more absurd because unlike unlike religious things which can't be proven or disproven I'm pretty sure I can prove to you that crystals are just made out of crystals and have zero power whatsoever and I could do a controlled study and you wouldn't believe it anyway um, yeah you know if, if someone who is so certain of something and then sees that belief destroyed there's a void and they have to fill it and so well, he he's also right over to her He's also like it's funny because he's he's like denigrating her beforehand, and I think yeah. this is actually it, it goes back to my thing about her being I think somewhat believable because of the things that she uh, she she appears to be making these prophecies which quickly come true. So even this guy who was basically calling her crazy at the beginning of the movie is by the end like one of her uh, like most adamant followers. So. You see, but again, that's my problem. Is I didn't find any of her prophecies all that impressive. You know, I've, what did she say that really was, you know, wow, we did not see that coming. I think everyone right, but, realized. But, but, they, but again, but again, like uh, the, the reason the reason that I, I originally found that troubling like you, but have, I've come around to that is because I've seen plenty of examples of people <laughs> saying things and you're like, why? Why is anyone listening to this person? Because even when they're right, they're right for the wrong reasons. So I don't know. I think I think it's I think it's tr I think it's actually frustrating because it's so real. But I don't know. I think it might have worked better if, and this would have required that we hurt uh, the hero character, if um, if our hero, our protagonist, was maybe a little more. A little less humble about the situation that they're in like if he really was we are going to go and get this medicine everything's going to be fine and then it just turns into a disaster but no he, he knew going out there you know you could see in his face this this is going to end probably badly but we have no choice um you know then i could see people turning away from him you know like again i go back to night living dead where the hero and he's definitely the hero. He's the likable guy. He's brave. He's got all these good qualities. Every single decision he makes gets people killed. Hmm. <laughs> and and the cowardly dickwad back at the house who keeps saying, we need to go to the basement, we need to go to the basement, he is 100% correct. That's great. That's great. Um, here, yeah. the, it, that's not quite as uh, obvious here because this comedy is such an awful person. But... Ah. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah. Anyone else? Anyone else have any thoughts on William Sadler before we move along? Good actor. Great actor. Good actor. Now listen, does does Darabont ever cast the wrong people? I mean, I'd say that's one of his strengths is that his movies yeah. are really thoughtfully cast, well cast. And when he finds people, he tends to use them a lot because he picked the right people the first time. You know, you pick someone mm -hmm. who's really good, especially in these supporting roles. Yeah, I know. For all I know, when he writes the script, he's probably got someone in, you know, a specific person in mind and make sure that that script matches who they're going to be. Yeah, and that's that's I, we've, we've talked about that on our on our other podcast about like, uh, especially in regards to The Walking Dead. But yeah, he's so good. And, I, and it's interesting because when he finds good actors, he keeps working with them. And even when it's not him, because I think I want to say it was I didn't write this down. I want to say it was Toby Jones who he said he actually wasn't familiar with. And it was his, his casting director basically said, Hey, you really need to consider this guy for a role. So it's, it's like Darabont's really good at casting people, but he's also, I guess, really good at trusting the people that he's 
you know, working with to cast to, to, to pick good people if it's not him directly. On that note, let's talk about another cast, uh, uh, another uh, what I think is probably the most fortuitous piece of casting in this movie. Um, this is a woman that uh, Frank Darabont described as a local actress because uh, I guess she was from Texas. They were shooting in Louisiana. And uh, this is someone that I guess Darabont had just hired because she read for a role. Uh, talk about Melissa McBride as woman with kids at home. <laughs> or uh, as as uh, as Bill called her, Carol. And anyone who knows about The Walking Dead knows that she's, you know, been on the show forever. She's a fan favorite. Phenomenal actress. Uh, I, I didn't know until I was doing the research for this that she was just a random casting for this movie. Wow. And and that that led to since it's Darabont that led to him casting her in The Walking Dead and now she's you know been in that show for twelve years. Um, Darabont lucky said and break. I yeah lucky that well it's it's yeah a lucky break ninety nine percent luck but also I mean the, the her performance in this movie um, is phenomenal like if Darabont even mentioned on the commentary that uh, I guess you know she has I mean she only has the one scene where she has any lines. But uh, in the scene where she is, you know, trying to convince, she's asking, you know, people to go go with her to to get her kids. You know, he said after they shot that, he had a bunch of the like far far more experienced actors on the set coming up to him and just being like telling her uh, telling him how amazing she was. So yeah, I think she's great in this movie. I mean, she only has the one scene, um, but I think she she sells it and. Again, it's just it's a minor role, but uh, Darabont like there are no minor roles in Darabont's movies. Like they're all just yeah. phenomenally yeah. well cast. She really is good. She she has the ability to appear very vulnerable and also very strong. And and as yeah. the Carol character, yeah, you know, she yeah. starts out she's just this poor, horribly abused woman uh, by her lout lout of a husband, and you know by the by a few seasons later she's practically a superhero. You know, just and that's why she became a fan favorite. But yeah, she's she's great in this. Uh, it's a it's a small role, but it really hits home. And you know, again, that gut punch, that gut punch of an ending. There's so many yeah. reasons. I mean, we'll be talking about. It. There's so many reasons why that ending. It's like he just can't stop twisting the knife. You think yeah. you, you've hit rock bottom, and then yeah. all of a sudden it's like, oh, and here comes that woman. So it's like, oh my god. Yeah. which uh, yeah. funny you should mention that Darabont uh, apparently that was not Darabont's idea uh, apparently <laughs> that was a suggestion by Mr. Jeffrey DeMunn no joke yeah yeah the part wow. with her at the end the, having, yeah having her at the end and showing that she oh. survived yeah oh, wow. <laughs> Leave it so, uh, what's Jeffrey. funny what's funny was this watching it this time around it had been so long since I had watched it up until the point where Miss Carmody gets shot I was I was remembering it as Miss Carmody on there, which would have been even like oh, kind of a weird thing. <laughs> yeah. And so it was like when she got shot, I was like, oh wait, oh fuck, wait, it's the other lady. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I had completely forgotten, and it was like, yeah. And I did I didn't recognize her as Carol at you know till till you till I was like afterwards like oh yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> so. So yeah, it was it was interesting watching it, thinking I knew what was coming, and going, oh okay. Ah. Fooled yourself. I like it though. Yeah. Now, there's one thing I totally misremembered, and like I said, I kind of skimmed through the story, 
for today, and it's not in the movie. I really thought that we saw that the um, the store was eventually overcome. Mm, I don't. But think we so. don't see that. I know, and I guess that's not in the book. They just get in, they drive away, and everyone watches them. Which is one more thing to think about. All those jerks probably survived. Yeah, in this you know? version. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're probably fine. Yeah, they're, they're probably yeah. You know they, which which means again, Miss they listened to Mrs. Carmody and they lived. <laughs> yeah, as Renee has as Renee has showed us, uh, hashtag uh, Mrs. Carmody was right. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get that trending now. Uh, oh God! Is there is there anyone else anyone wants to talk about in terms of the cast? this movie or should i, I guess i can fire? go ahead and just say um so referring to thomas jane um and i so i i kind of waffle a little bit because part of me is like okay i can sort of get his motivation here but the very last scene where he's like uh and he's like all sad and crying and shit it mm-hmm. looks like there's these moments where he's like all right are we good Oh, you want me to keep going? Okay. Ah! Are we good now? No, you want me to keep going? Okay. Ah! It's weird because it's like yeah. his face drops and then he's back into it. And you could, I could sort of see like, okay, your maybe your brain is like, no, this isn't really happening. This can't be true. Like your brain is breaking. But at the yeah. same time, it was so strange. Oh, that's <laughs> he was, I'd have to, I'd he was have to no back Rebecca De Mornay. Yeah. I, yeah. You, you mean, uh, no, no, uh, um, did I call her uh, the wrong name again? I did. Yeah, no Tracy yeah. Lord. She's no, no Tracy, Tracy Lord. Or he's no, <laughs> no Tracy no. Lord. Granted, granted. Jane granted, Thomas it was a is no Tracy Lord. Thomas Jane. Yeah, except those <laughs> Jane Thomas. There's, Tom there's a t-shirt. So. <laughs> so but, he, you know, he, um, in, in all fairness, her bit was much shorter. Um, that's interesting. I'd have to go back and watch it. Yeah. Because it, it, to me, it rang true, but. I'd have to look at that again. Now, there are times, remember, I at least it seemed to hit me more when I was a kid when you would just sob so much and then you'd have to like stop and take a breath and then sob some more. <laughs> so wonderful. It's like he makes it. really weird faces. Oh. I don't know. It's weird. I think no, that's it's, an it's ugly a very cry. Constant. It's just an ugly cry, yeah. Renee. That's, that's, a hard, that's a hard scene to play without going overboard. I mean, in most, in most movies, the, the trope is you just, your mind breaks and you start laughing, you know? Like you've gone crazy. You're in a Lovecraft movie, and uh, yeah, this is it. Your mind's broken. Uh, you, you gotta. I mean, there's no way of watching that without believing. If this movie was five minutes longer, it would consist of him trying to wrestle a gun from someone else so he could blow his brains out. There's no way mm-hmm. this guy's gonna survive this. He may have survived the mist, but he can't survive with what he's done. Mm-hmm. It's 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 the bleakest ending of any movie ever. It's that's actually awful. uh Bill that's a that's actually a better tagline than the movie actually had. <laughs> yeah. He can survive the mist, but can he survive yeah. himself? Ooh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> the part of me wanted to end when it was pulling away to end with like really goofy music like da 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 Oh boy, yeah. I, I, Renee, I read it as just like waves of anguish, kind of rolling over him. But mm-hmm. I don't know. And I think, and that I could totally, and maybe it's just because I wasn't like connecting to the moment. 
because I could probably see that, but but it just and maybe I need to find a clip to show you guys. For some reason in my brain, it was like it it's almost like he it felt like he broke character in a weird way. I don't know. Hmm. It was just me. I wasn't I wasn't vibing, Mister. I mean, maybe yeah. The the only like I. Like, like listening again, like going back to the, the way this film was shot, I do remember like uh, the actors, I think a couple of the actors said that they, it took them a while to get into kind of the vibe of it because they weren't doing a lot of cuts where, you know, you just say one line cut or whatever, uh, since they were, they were kind of shooting continuously. Um, so I don't know, maybe, maybe that had something to do with it, but I don't know. Yeah, that um, could totally Paul, be. Paul, can we please, can you please reach out to Thomas Jane so we can get him on the podcast and ask him about his acting choices in this, this movie. There, there we go. I'll, I'll do my yeah. best. Okay, questions. great. Remember sure me, I played the tuba. <laughs> yeah, I played the tuba. I played oh, the tuba. God. I quit okay. school to get away from you. <laughs> <laughs> but I had already graduated. Funny, oh. you know, that's the trick on him. <laughs> oh. Oh. Uh, that tuba was still echoing through the halls. Uh, yeah. Okay, we gotta we gotta move on here because I know we need to wrap things up before too long. <laughs> so I'm just gonna shotgun through the, the, just a couple characters. I just want to mention some notes on them, and you guys can stop me if you want to talk about them, or we can just move along. Uh, I wanted to mention uh, Chris Owen as Norm, the the bag boy. Uh, what a what a dumbass. He deserved to die. <laughs> uh, I just thought it was thought it was kind of funny. Uh, Darabont mentioned that he actually I guess had a minor fan following. And uh, he got some attention for being cast in this because apparently he had a, a little bit of a fan following from his work in the American Pie films. So I thought that was kind of funny. Now, uh, remind me again, how did he die? He, he gets dragged out by the he's he's determined to go out and fix the thing, uh, fi- oh, unclog yeah. the thing because to kind of prove himself. And he's the one that gets grabbed by the uh, the tentacle. Uh, and smacks well, his head into the elephant yeah, doors. Is yeah. Going yeah. Great. Well, the, we, these we, we tentacles were, didn't leave well, yeah. any prisoners. I mean, they didn't just grab onto you. They yanked shit yeah. off. Well, let's, let's, yeah, let's, we'll, we'll talk about those in just a moment. Um, I also want to mention uh, Francis Sternhagen as Irene Repler, uh, AKA the old woman who almost, almost survives to the end. Yeah, uh, I just, yeah. I thought it was kind of interesting because, uh, well, she had, she had previously appeared in misery. So there's a little bit of a, a King connection, um, but also, I love the fact that uh, I guess Darabont just really loved her and had been a fan of her, hers for years, and that's why he cast her in this movie. Finally, I just want to mention uh, Sam Witwer as Private Jessup. We talked about this a little bit. Uh, he his scene at the end, I actually really like. Again, I, I like the fact that they they kept the Project Arrowhead stuff because they got to add this scene in. I think it says a lot about you know uh, Carmody's character that she's just using this guy as ba- I mean, she's basically blaming this guy, but I mean, he's, I mean, come on, he's a private, obviously he had no mm-hmm. idea what was going on and, and no real power. I mean, he was probably just like a guard, but at the same time, she's like basically blaming him for everything that's happening and, and insisting that he needs to be a sacrifice. Well, you know what? His eyebrows bothered the shit out of me. So I was, I was, I was fine. With it. <laughs> oh my God. And, and apparently that's, if you look like th- this is like, I was like, well, did they, did they tweeze his eyebrows? Cause that's what it looked like. But if you look at pictures oh, yeah. of him and just about everything he in, he's got those like these weird, like eyebrows that just, I don't know. It bothered me the whole time. I'm like, did they tweeze his eyebrows? I don't no. understand what's going on there. It just looks really, his, his eyebrows are like, look tweezed, very tweezed, but that's how they are. <laughs> Some just people just have me. naturally fabulous eyebrows. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't call them fabulous. <laughs> I'd call them disturbing. Wow. I just, I just, it just bothered uh, the shit out of me. Yeah. Well, thinking, uh, speaking of disturbing, uh, one other <laughs> thing I thought was kind of interesting. Frank Garabont described uh, the scene where he's killed, and the whole like the the mob is basically uh, turning on him, and they, you know, they stab him, and and Carmody's getting them all kind of riled up. Uh, he actually described that as the scariest day on set because he said that it was is basically being in the middle of that. And even like the camera people, I think were mentioning, like they were basically in the middle of that mob. And I guess they were so good at pretending to be a mob that it was actually a little bit uh, uncomfortable. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I also wanted to men- mention him because uh, another Walking Dead connection. Uh, he, is, he is the zombie in the or the dead body in the tank. At the end of the first episode of The Walking Dead. No, yeah. stop. Oh, yeah, which, oh, wow. you, yeah, you, you. I think you knew I, that because we talked about that on the other. Podcast, we totally but, talked about it. Yeah, and and I just. Oh. Yeah, um, I think I, think I was so Dar- distracted by those eyebrows. I just didn't. <laughs> <laughs> which I think I think Darabont cast him in that role because he was going to do some sort of like backup story about that character, but then he didn't get to. So it's just this weird. That's right. He but, was. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then, and speaking of the walking dead, the final, I was going to say might as well. Yeah. Do you want to mention, do you want to mention him? Our buddy Morales. Yeah. Juan also, Gabriel. Also known as Morales. <laughs> uh, yeah. Juan Gabriel uh, Pareja as Morales. He's one of the, he's one of the guys that uh, hangs himself. Uh, and then uh. he, yeah, he's Morales in this, in this movie. And then he shows up as Morales on, season one of the walking dead so once again uh apparently working with frank garabont is uh, it's great work if you get it because that means you will get yeah. jobs well actually you won't because frank garabont's basically retired now but um, why couldn't you guys have gone to school with him <laughs> <laughs> uh, i think yeah. I'm, well personally i'm a little young to have gone to school with him but, <laughs> uh anyone else sorry i just shotgun through them is there anyone else we want to mention before we move mm-hmm. on to uh the main character of this movie and of course, oh I am God. talking about the mist. The mist. Oh no, I was going to talk. I was talking about David uh, Drayton's uh, uh, wife, Steph. I, in my, in oh my opinion, she's actually. <laughs> sorry, she's... we didn't even mention her. I didn't even write her name down. Uh, great actress, though. I'm sure did a great job. If you're listening, yeah. um, she looked yeah, very let's dead. Talk. She, did. she looked very dead at the end. She she um, was alive at the beginning. She had she had a couple lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah she had a couple. Yeah, lines. yeah, um, yeah. But let's talk about kind of the main character in this movie. And I'm, of course, referring to the mist and the monsters in it. And I don't know. What do you guys... Uh, I have a couple notes that I wanted to discuss. But is there anything that you guys want to talk about specifically about the monsters or the... What's the scariest monster in this movie, Renee? Oh, What's this, what is What is the mist monster that you would least want to encounter? Probably the one I can't see. <laughs> um, but Which the one... one- uh, the one I can't see. <laughs> um, that would be probably the one that's responsible with like the big giant tentacle monster, like the yeah. yeah, like the mothership monster. But there was that little one that looked like a like a bird, like it had like a bird beak. Remember, it like jumped in the window and it like started ripping that dude's like neck yeah, off. The, like, yeah. the ter- pterodactyl looking thing. That was yeah. a pretty rough little fella. Although that yeah. bug was pretty nasty. I don't. Yeah, I don't think I want to <laughs> really ru- tango with any of those. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like. Go ahead. The pterodactyls had stupid faces, I thought. They, you know, yeah, they, they just, did. You know. Oh, my God. It faces, reminded me of, of Terry space. from Pee Wee's Playhouse. <laughs> 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 hey, Pee Wee. Yeah. 
But speaking of faces, I did like kind of the skull faces on the spiders. I thought that, that was, was pretty cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I had a, int- a note about that, which I I did not know this until I did some research. Uh, I've always loved the design uh, of these these monsters. Um, apparently, the design of a lot of these these creatures was done by none other than Bernie Wrightson. Who, oh uh, wow! Oh, I can yeah. see that. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know because I think uh, like Greg Nicotero and those guys did some design too. So I think I'm guessing Bernie Wrightson probably did the like designs on paper, and then they kind of translated those designs into the the actual monsters. Uh, for anyone who's listening doesn't know Bernie Wrightson, uh, pretty legendary artist. Uh, he's actually done some other work. He did uh, creature design Swamp for thing. Land of. Oh, well, I was going to say he did. Oh, he's done ow. other film work, Land of the Dead and the Faculty. Sure. But uh, he is also the co-creator of the DC's character Swamp Thing, which if you if you know anything about comics, if the name doesn't sound familiar, but you're familiar with classic comics, just go look up House of Secrets number 92. It's probably one of the most iconic like horror comic uh, covers of all time. Um, and if you ever get a he, chance to, to see his Frankenstein, his illustrated Frankenstein, it's yeah. stunning. Absolutely stunning. And uh, he, he also uh, he also illustrated uh, a book, and I believe it was 1983 that it was it came out, titled "Cycle of the Werewolf," uh, by none mm. other than Mr. Stephen King as well. Uh, so, kind of an interesting King connection there. Um, but the other thing, the the thing about that I wanted to like, I've always the, the the creatures in this movie are just it's it's the human faces that get me, and that always, especially the spiders. Like, I mean, I hate spiders. But there's something about the spiders with the vaguely human faces that just that, that push them over the top. And uh, I did not realize this, but apparently, uh, and maybe uh, Bill and Paul, I, I, I had I was vaguely familiar with this. I'd seen pictures. I've never seen the episode. But Darabont actually mandated that the spiders have these human faces because of the episode of The Outer Limits entitled The Xanti Misfits. Yeah. Oh, oh, God. Wow. Yes. Xanti oh, yeah. Oh, sure. man. Holy sure, crap. Man. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, those always freaked me out. They're just yeah, they're they're like ants, and they have like they're well, they're ant like yeah. aliens with, with, with yeah, that was a great episode. They, oh, what they freaked the shit out of me. It's the outer limits. The yeah. the Zanti misfits. Z a n t i. Just look it up on Google Image Search, and you'll immediately. Apparently, uh, yeah, apparently this was something that that you know, I guess Darabont probably saw the episode as a kid, and he said that it was something that I had stuck <laughs> with him. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you found him. Oh my god! Yeah, it's a, it's a great episode with a cool little twist at the end too. So oh, very cool. much so. Yeah, holy fun, shit, fun. Yeah, so I think uh, I think the thing. Oh yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Bill. No, I was gonna say the, and and if if you've read the novella, the thing that everyone was like, oh, how are they? What are they gonna do with the monster at the end? And the monster at the end is just they're driving, and this thing walks across the road in front of them and. You know, it's it's so big it doesn't even regard them. It's like you're swimming in the ocean and a blue whale goes by. You're a barnacle compared to this. And, uh, you know, it's, it's well described, very well described in the novella. And it, the danger, of course, always when you show something that's just described as indescribable, this is, you know, when you're trying to do a Lovecraftian thing, uh, you can't get away with that. You can't just show people looking, oh my God, I can't describe it. Turn, turn the camera around so we can see it. I thought they did a great job. It had the right, you know, it's got the tentacles. It's got the wrong number of legs. It's huge. But what's Especially... also nice is it's it's just obscured enough. Yeah, like, right. You know, mm-hmm. It could have mm-hmm. it could have been way too. You could have seen way too much of it. 
detail yeah, like or it could have been so obscured like you yeah but with this you're right they 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 got that balance just right with it because you got the sense of scale you got enough detail but not so much that you're that made you made your brain have to fill other parts in <laughs> and it just really kind of felt real i, I really yeah. like that and that yeah, was and, that not uh, the ending was that not the ending of the original story is that the, is that kind of, it just kind of walks past and they have to keep well, driving or the, yeah they keep on they keep on going and th here's the thing the ending of the novella is the exact opposite of the movie <laughs> yes the end the literally the last word in the novella is hope and Stop. the yeah. the end of the movie is the loss of hope, hopelessness, and and that's yeah. that's the great sin that they have is that they lose all hope and do the wrong thing because there was hope, but once you so I, if if there's anything to take away from this movie, if you want to learn any hard lessons from this, is that no matter how bad things are, until there's literally spiders tearing out your abdomen, there's always <laughs> that small sliver of hope. But of course, nine times out of ten, it doesn't work out that way. I'm always amazed. You know, you see, you hear about some of the atrocities that have happened in the world, which regrettably have not been from monsters. They've been from humans and people just being lined up against walls or forced to dig their own graves. And you think to yourself, why don't you fight back? I mean, yeah, the, the chance that the gun's going to jam and you're going to be able to decapitate them with the shovel is awfully slim. But isn't that more of a chance? But, you know, when you're there, I guess... When you're there digging your own grave, you're just hoping maybe this is all a joke. Maybe this will stop. Maybe someone will rescue me. Um, but it usually doesn't work out that way, does it? So, it, it, you know, you can justify what happens in the ending that they're, he's doing he's doing something that will prevent these people from a horrible death. They, everyone's going to die. He's going to kill them. But this is a swift death. This child that he loved so much, the thought of watching him, his last his last moments on earth will be watching his child be devoured painfully well, and eaten the, alive. Uh, no. Well, and, the, and the boy says, promise me that you will not let the monsters get me. I mean, yeah. that is, that's, that's, he says to him, promise yeah. me. And then the, the boy wakes up right before it happens. That was, yeah. Crazy. But what you do, what you doing with the gun, dad? <laughs> One thing I thought was kind of, one thing I thought was kind of interesting is we talked just recently about, about uh, an, another film where they take the source material and completely flip it on flip it on its head and it pissed us off and that was you know th that was I am legend right, right. The, the like right. The, the the Will Smith one they took the <laughs> yeah. source material completely flipped it on its head and pissed us off here they completely flip the ending on its head and I, I, I'm not sure, I mean, it's a good movie, but I'm not sure if we would have been talking about it as much and if it would have had as much impact on people if they didn't do that. So I, it's oh, oh kind no. of an, yeah. Ballsy ending, ballsy ending. But I'm sure somewhere there was a guy in a suit who, who was like, you got to change this ending. And uh, I was like, I'm not going to change this ending. And they're like, well, we're going to, we're going to cut the budget on this because we're pretty darn sure when this movie gets out, uh, Lots of people led by Bill's wife are going to be telling all their friends <laughs> not to go see this movie because it's got like, the, the worst ending ever. And uh, they were right. They were right. This is this was never going to fly. Uh, so, but yeah, would we ta guts. be talking about it now? No, it, no. I, I think, <laughs> no, 90% of this movie's infamy 
and, and is because of that ending. There, there is. I can't, I'm trying to think of anything bleaker. There's been a lot of endings where people die. And a lot of mm-hmm. horror movies where you think the hero got away, but then he turns to his girlfriend, and last thing, she's coming at the camera, she's got fangs, she was turned to a vampire, presumably so will he. That, that's how every 70s vampire movie ended. <laughs> so it's not just a matter of killing off the characters or they didn't get away. That, that happens a lot. But this one, this one just, it stabs you, and then it keeps on twisting the knife. It just keeps it, on it, twisting. It, and it, I don't remember it being so long. Like when I, I remember watching the first time, going, yeah. "Oh wow, that was." But watching this time, I'm like, "Wow!" I was, you know, you think sometimes things feel longer when you first watch them. I was like, "Oh my god, this is just going on and it's on." True. I'm ready to pull out the gun. I mean, geez, it just really goes <laughs> on, you yeah. know. And I mean, it, but I mean, again, I I don't think we'd be talking about it if it wasn't. No, so that's I mean, that's sort of the. Mm-hmm. Well, just just to add uh, some context to what Bill is talking about, in, in the novella, they are ba- basically they just keep driving and driving, and I think I think at one point the uh, I think Drayton is just you know kind of musing on like how how long how far they can get on the gas that they have, but apparently at one point like if I remember correctly, he's listening to the radio and he's right. like he says I heard I think I think I heard one word through the static and it was hope. I'm paraphrasing there. It was Hartford, um, Hart, the town of Hartford, and he said Hartford, which sounds a lot like the word. Yeah, hope. it sounds a lot so like hope. It's it's better yeah. written than what I just said, but yeah. Mm. And oh, that's to right. me, yeah. to me, that's just so amazing because the the whole reason they do what they did is because he had no hope at all. Yeah, well, it's interesting though because uh, yeah, and on that because you even you literally hit the, the nail on the head, Bill, because uh, there was a uh, Darabont. Uh, from an interview in 2016, he was talking about the ending, um, and he said it seems like thematically it's a pretty good companion piece to Shawshank in a weird way, because uh, if Shawshank is the movie about the value of hope, then The Mist becomes a movie about the danger of hopelessness. And believe me, mm. I know uh, I know that it, I knew that it was going to be one of those endings that people either really dug or really hated. Uh, apparently, one of the people that really dug the ending was uh, Mr. Stephen King himself, because mm-hmm. Darabont is very proud that. King, uh, King, uh, he he mentions multiple in multiple interviews that King sent him an email saying uh, that he wishes he had thought of that ending because he would have done it. He or he that would have been the ending of the story if he had thought of it. So um, mm. it's also interesting that we, uh, Bill uh, and I think a few other people have mentioned Night of the Living Dead. Uh, King has just compared the ending of the movie straight up to the ending of Night of the Living Dead, where he says, you know, nothing really ends up well for anyone. So uh. yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because King wrote a book that has very much a missed ending, and it's uh, Cujo. Yeah. The and ending I, I of Cujo is, is bleak and unhappy and unsatisfying and, and everything, and they totally changed that for the movie because they wanted to make money. Well, and I, th- <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I can't find the quote, but I swear there was a quote from Stephen King that he said, after writing Cujo, he never wanted to write an ending like that again. He never mm-hmm. wanted to write anything as bleak as ending that. So that's kind of interesting that he, he says, <laughs> oh, but I love the ending of The Mist. But I mean, uh, that's, uh, you know. Oh, Stephen is that King... what he said? And then and then he wrote Pet Cemetery. <laughs> well, okay. I'm not sure when he when he, I'm not sure when he mentioned the thing about yeah. writing the ending of Cujo. But yeah, so. I mean, he, um, yeah, he, he's also like coked out of his mind when he wrote Cujo. So. Right. So yeah. there you go. Yeah, that's that's true. He I think he said he. He really likes Cujo, and he wish he remembered writing it. Yeah, yeah. I listened. I listened to his, his <laughs> just 
any any prospective writers out there um he wrote a marvelous book called on writing which is like 50 percent advice on how to write and 50 percent the autobiography of stephen king and he uh he narrates it why wouldn't he on the book on tape and that's definitely the way i would i would listen to it it's it's great it's full mm. of good advice it's super entertaining he doesn't he doesn't hold back on any of the warts and all everything from his own addictions to his almost fatal hit accident where he got run over and uh it's, it's a it's a great thing but yeah i think he i think he mentioned i think that's where i heard him make that statement that he doesn't remember writing cujo and he regrets that if he could write that well, coked out of his mind, it's like, damn, that, now that's a that's a natural gift right there. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'd know how I'd write if I were hooked on anything. <laughs> it, would not be, it would not be legible. Let's what? find out. Wait, I was going to yeah. say, Bill, you won't know yeah. until you try it. So <laughs> for, your next, yes. for your next novel. Um, <laughs> so so I did want to, one other thing I just wanted to mention, I don't know if you guys have any other comments on the, the monsters or the mist. Actually, I'm sorry, there are two things I want to mention. Uh, Darabont mentioned, I thought it was pretty funny, <laughs> but, uh, the, when Sam Witwer, the, uh, private dress up, he gets, uh, stabbed and then pushed out the door. And then there's that weird crab creature that comes and grabs him mm. that later kills, to, uh, Toby Jones. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> he mentioned that that was actually a nod and I, I went back and I was like, yeah, okay. Even if he's joking, I actually see this, but he, he said it was uh, supposed to be a reference to, uh, the boss in monsters, Inc., which, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so oh, that okay. was pretty funny yeah and the, the other thing i i love about this movie um i just want to mention real quick I, I was watching some of the behind the scenes stuff and apparently they you know they they built basically the entire uh the, the that entire sh- uh, uh uh grocery store was just a huge set that they built on a sound stage mm-hmm. um so that was kind of interesting and then they had like a second set which was i think they called it the mist tank and it was literally just like the exterior. So it was like the exterior of the store. And then it was like a uh, self-contained thing where they could just pump mist in it. And that's all the things mm. uh, that you, anytime they go out, basically the store that you're cutting to that set. Uh, so I thought that was, that was very interesting stuff. But I love the fact that when you, they're in the mist, the mist almost has, it's, it doesn't sound like something in the mist. It's almost like being, in, the mist has its own sound to it. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about? Like when yeah. they when they go out and it sounds like a like I don't know, almost like a humming yeah. or like this almost subaudible sound, which I really love because it's like go when you go out into the mist, it's not just that you're going like the mist is otherworldly because somehow it's brought this I don't know, this atmosphere with it that just sounds different, which I really like. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't really it's it's weird because I didn't really connect that. But thinking back, it's I totally get what you're saying, because there was almost like. I don't know. Yeah, it's like a weird, you know, like a gray noise or something where it's like, yeah, you hear it, but you don't hear it because you're not yes. hearing it. <laughs> but it's, yeah. but it's, there. Yeah, it's, like when, it's like when you're on the Enterprise, you can hear the, exactly. Uh, That's the, exactly yeah, the, what the, it's like the sound of the, the engines. Yeah. yeah. Or the uh, the Blade Runner uh, apartments. Yeah. Um, cool. Is there is there anything else that we want to say? Uh, oh, actually, I, I do have one other note. I just I just love the fact these monsters, they're all like scary. Like all the concepts for these monsters are scary, and then they like crank it up to eleven because like you have like okay these things that are like basically big spiders, which is scary enough, and then they give them 
human faces and then they give them like acid webs and then they give them the fact that they like lay eggs in you and the eggs hatch while you're still alive um you have these things that are basically like huge flies but then they also have like stingers and then you have like uh these giant tentacles which is pretty scary getting grabbed by giant tentacles is pretty scary in and of itself um but they all have the, the these uh these suckers that look like little mouths and they have like these claws that uh, look like you know uh like almost like teeth i don't know i just love the fact that it's like all of the monsters aren't just here's something that's that's creepy it's like here's something that's like vaguely recognizable from our world but mm-hmm. it has like these weird alien twists on them that make them just completely like insanely terrifying so I don't know. I what really I find, like what I, I find it, it interesting premise. Uh, Thank you, this of course. Logically, we should be able to walk out in the mist, and these things should just fly right by us. Mm-hmm. You know, that it, completely alien. It's like you know, you're out swimming in the ocean, and there's sharks all around you. I hate to be breaking the news mm-hmm. to anybody. There's sharks everywhere, and 999 times out of a thousand, they do nothing because we're not really belonging there. They don't see us as food or prey or whatever we're we're not part of their world and for the most part they just disregard us these things we seem to be a really important part of the reproductive cycle you know so either in this universe in this weird multiverse here there's something that fills the niche of humans and we don't run into those maybe thank god um or i'm just over here you know I, I, it would be be interesting to have something where a movie where you're in this horrifying world full of all these things and you're just walking through like snow white through the forest you know they just they just <laughs> look at you with curiosity and and you know a certain amount of affection and then go off and do their horrible life cycle on the ones that they were meant to do but no apparently yeah. for whatever reason we are just like a tasty morsel they're like oh where's this been all my life mm-hmm. well and Boy, they reproduce fast because it was it wasn't that long yeah. that those guys were in there, yeah. and all of a sudden he's like a bazillion little baby spiders comes up pretty quick, and yeah. they had to have eaten him. So I mean, they move fast, but maybe maybe their time is shifted from maybe ours, maybe yeah. you know. Maybe. And you think, oh, that's awfully unrealistic, but then you see you know stories of some Australian town that overnight gets covered in webs, which is when my <laughs> wife turns to me and says, "Oh, by the way, we are never going to Australia." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm well, okay. I think I think it's also and, like, and by and by the way, just to clarify, the the hooks on the tentacles is actually not an unheard of thing. Seeing as like squids, especially like the colossal squid, has sure. hooks in their their in the suckers on the tentacles. So hey, I've, okay. I, I've seen I've seen deep rising. I know the science here. <laughs> exactly. No, they really do. I mean, they really do. Oh yeah, yeah, no, they, they yeah. Do. And they have They're beaks horrible. too. Keep that in mind. They have beaks, like you know. Yeah, and then they'll pieces. always they'll always tell you stuff like you know there's really no recorded instance of a human being killed by giant squids. Like, how would you tell anyone that that <laughs> happened? I mean, you know, like they say, killer whales don't kill humans. Like, how would you know? An Eskimo in a kayak meets a killer whale who decides you know he's hungry and wants to see what humans like. What's he gonna do? Write a letter to a congressman telling him about the experience? It's like they're gonna you know. They're not even going to find the kayak. He just went out into the ocean and he never came back. Well, shit happens. Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> the first word in killer whale is killer. I, I think you're taking a hell of a chance here. Oh, those poor little baby <laughs> whales. Yeah. Hey, I, I saw Orca. I saw the movie yeah. Orca. Yeah, he took Bo Derek's <laughs> leg right off. 
Uh, yeah, I, I was actually I was thinking more of the the uh, the giant like almost uh, like dagger like things on the outside of the tentacles. That was the part like, that yeah, that's who I don't want to have a run in with because I'm not yeah, going to yeah. be able to dodge that thing. Well, th- and see that's that's also where the movie kind of lost me a little bit. I appreciate that they tried to save that kid, but and and listen, I'd grab his oh, arms yeah, and pull and pull because you know I, I want to be part of that scene where in the end the only thing I'm hanging on to is his arms. Yeah. <laughs> Always wanted to be on the right end of that story. But um, <laughs> when there's these giant flesh-ripping tentacles on both sides of you as you're doing this, I'm sorry, kid, you're right, on but, your own. But no, no, because that's that's how we know that David Drayton and, and to an extent Ollie Weeks are the heroes because they, they are willing to, like the other two are just standing there, whereas Drayton yeah. is going in, in, yeah, even though it looks pretty hopeless, he's going and trying to save the kid. Yeah. So, I, I just want to point out at least one of those guys who was just standing there is still standing at the end of the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> as far so, as we know. As far as we know. Yeah. Um, or maybe maybe like, well, like that beh- the, the behemoth that they see, he actually like stepped on the store like two minutes later and killed everyone. That's that what would you be don't so see. cool. That'd be great. <laughs> so, that actually would yeah. be pretty great. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'd like to know what the army's going to do when they come across him. I mean, you can see him there. They're burning spiders with, uh, with, uh, with the uh, flamethrowers yeah, flame and everything. Although the, the, it seemed to me as though, boy, things things went to normal really fast. Like maybe the mist is actually keeping these things alive. And once the mist that's, starts to, that's dissipate, what I always thought. Yeah, yeah. So it really oh, seems because yeah, they have like to kind just, of stay in the mist, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're like burning the corpses more than actually attacking yeah. these things head on. That's the way I always took it, but yeah. Um, cool. Well, we should probably move on here. One last thing I want to mention. Uh, did anyone have any notes about the music? Did anyone notice the music? There's hardly any music in here. Bro, what was up with the music, though? (laughs) It was weird. And then at the end, I'm like, is this some sort of, like, strange, like, weird? Like, is this? I don't know. It was just not like, like, a not. I'm I'm just trying, trying to think of how to put this. Like, it was foreign music and it, yeah. it was almost like what are you what it like mm, i don't know it just threw me off sorry i know i didn't explain that well at all and i'm just making like faces and noises but <laughs> it was weird yeah well so i, I was actually more talking about the 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 oh, score sorry. Uh, no 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 uh, that's a <laughs> I'm talking about the weird chanting they would have, yeah. you know, the yeah. choral bit, the choral bit. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. So, yeah. so the, the the song at the end uh, that you're referring to is the host of Seraphim by uh, Dead Can Dance. I actually don't know. I don't know if it's that is actually sung in because I want to say that Lisa Gerard, the singer, I want to say that sometimes she does songs that aren't actually in any actual language. I can't remember. Um, mm. I personally love this song. I love the sequence. I think it works perfectly. I think uh, Darabont actually mentioned that he always planned to use that song in there. Uh, no, I was actually just referring to the music and uh, using this as an excuse to mention that uh, the music, which is hardly in the movie at all otherwise, is uh, composed by uh, Mark Isham, who yeah. uh, he's done a bunch of other he's done a bunch of movies. I think if like I had to go back and because I was like, hmm, do I actually remember the music at all? Uh, it's fine. I went back and like listened to. Uh, th- there is the one scene where, uh, like it when the bugs start landing on the uh, the the glass, and it almost has like a a bit of a wondrous tone to it before it gets dark. Um, 
Now, I just wanted to mention him. Uh, he had previously composed the music for The Majestic. Um, actually, uh, I, I'm sorry. I, I keep saying that Frank Darabont only made three films. He actually, he I guess he made four because he made The Majestic. But uh, more importantly, uh, you guys thought you were going to get through an entire episode of this podcast without me mentioning this. But no, uh, you were wrong. Uh, Mark Isham, <laughs> also the uh, original composer, and there's still one song or one piece of music credited to him. And one of my favorite films of all time a little movie by the name of Waterworld. That's right. I'm mentioning Waterworld. Uh, let's move uh. on. <laughs> um, legacy and franchise. Uh, there's no franchise, and this movie didn't do no. well at the box office, and I don't think it inspired a whole lot of additional uh, films or other things, but uh, you guys tell me if I'm wrong. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will mention, I do want to mention really quickly, uh, there was a, and I'm going to, I'm putting quotation uh, quotation marks around this. There's an adaptation of The Mist, uh, a TV show that was on Spike TV in 2017, so a decade after this movie was released. Uh, it is the most confusing adaptation ever because it is. Li- they literally took the, they took the title. It's called The Mist. Uh, they took the <laughs> idea that they, they took the idea that the town is covered in mist. Uh, <laughs> there is nothing else there. There. <laughs> That is it. Uh, there, there are no monsters. Um, the mist basically. Is, it, if I is remember this the cra- one where the, the mist makes you see your greatest it fear? Makes, or it makes you go crazy and maybe uh. kill people. Um, anyways, uh, it's a piece of shit movie or a piece of shit show. I, I just had to mention it because it's like, tangentially related to. Uh, to oh, thanks movie. for the heads up. Yeah. So yeah. So <laughs> if you if you if you watch this movie and you're like, man, I I could really go for some more mist right now. Uh, don't get your hopes up <laughs> about going to see, going to watch the show. Anyways, we are running way over, so let's move on to our final section here, rantings and ratings. And this is the section where we kind of sum up our thoughts on this movie, and we're going to slap a score on it out of five crisp, clean VHS tapes. And you know what? Today, let's start with um, – let's actually – start with uh bill i want you to give us your your rating on this your final thoughts and your rating and then i also want you to uh go ask shauna what her and no, i'm just kidding um, <laughs> no yeah go, what tell us what I you will, thought about this movie. i will go ask her after i give it okay. i'm gonna okay, give perfect. i'm gonna give it three and a half um and i probably would have thought of, i was gonna give it four but the flaws stick out a little more now but the CGI, the CGI is not terrible, and and with the budget they had, they probably just couldn't afford to do the kind of animatronics. I think they maybe should have taken more advantage of the fact that there's a mist that could maybe make things look a little less sharp. And um, spiders are spiders are scary. And CGI spiders are not. They they never fooled me for a second. They don't move like real spiders. Real spiders, you know, have that sort of stop and go and. You're not even sure. Is that a dead spider? And then as you get close, it suddenly, you know, goes scrabbling at you. And like, ah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, it's, it's a cool... I love the monsters. I love monsters. Whatever. And <laughs> it, it's a cool it's a cool little story. There. It, it could have been better. But it's really well made. Darabont makes good-looking stuff. You guys didn't like the, the camera motion and everything, but I, I was admiring watching it. I said, you know, this... This movie looks like a movie. There's there's a lot of talk these days about you know the problem with 
movies that are made for streaming and movies that are made for theater, theatrical and what's been happening and all. And I do agree. I'm starting to notice more and more. There's some movies that are really well made. And I, I just find myself thinking, this looks like a movie. Oh, yeah, I'd almost forgotten what a movie looks like. The Batman <laughs> was one of those. I, while I'm watching, I'm like, this looks like it was shot on film by a filmmaker who, you know, to be shown on a big screen as opposed to it was shot for streaming. And, and I, I don't know if, if I'm wrong or not, but it, I, movies that go directly to Netflix, directly to HBO or Amazon, whatever, it just seems smaller. Even when the story they're telling is, is big, it just seems smaller, and yet they cost hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't understand it. You know, um, This looks good. This was a low-budget movie, and it looks good. Apparently, we've got $90 million movies that look so not great that they you know go straight to uh go straight to streaming or straight to the shelf i don't know I, it's i don't know i like the way this looks I like the way it's lit good actors writing eh, 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 eh. it's it's not necessarily the fault they were as, as zach has said they were very truthful to the source material and maybe that was a mistake maybe it just needed to uh, take take what King did King did some good stuff and everything but make it a little more cinematic or I don't know but hey, three and a half is not a bad score I like it I'll watch yeah. it again I'll probably watch it alone <laughs> <laughs> so while the next person is doing theirs I'm gonna go ask Shauna <laughs> okay this. great add okay. a five oh, VHS beautiful. tape Shauna okay okay right great back. well <laughs> Oh my god, I love it. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, let's move on to uh, Renee. What were your? What, can you sum up your feelings about this movie and slap a rating on it? I like this movie. You know, sometimes it's hard, and I kind of think sometimes you know it's harder when you're young and you you watch movies and there's a character in it that you just really don't like. Um, but then nowadays, I think that's just a sign of them being a pretty good actor that they can convince me to hate them. Um, so, so honestly, though, it's, sometimes it's difficult to watch movies with characters you don't like. So because you're just sitting there the whole time like, oh, I want to punch this lady in the face. Um, but I do like it and I will watch it. Um, it's one of those shows that, you know, if you're looking for something to watch and you jump on Tubi or Pluto or something that's maybe not Tubi, but something that's like actively streaming, if you see it playing, probably just sit watch the rest of it you know um so i like it um it's not like you know my in my top 20 um but i do enjoy it and I, so i think i have a similar sentiment to bill it, it is a fine film <laughs> um so i would gosh you know i i i think i would give it a three and a half as well not to be a copycat but i just feel like and no offense to anybody like a four might be just a Teeny tiny bit too much. I'm back, by All the right. way. Just heard the All right. Well, let's let's say let's save let's save, <laughs> save the, Shauna's the for last. Okay. Yeah, for the last. Yeah. Okay, and let's go on to uh, obviously the man who, if this if this if it wasn't for him, this movie would have been very different because it would have had a, a different star. Uh, Paul, you want to sum up your thoughts on this one? Yeah. Um. So I mean, this film it's definitely impactful, right? Um. It's it. It is it is reason we talk about it is that ending that really does kind of 
you know, sometimes the ending is what sticks the, you know, you stick the landing and boy, they stuck it. Not necessarily the way you wanted to, but they did. And, uh, you know, you, we were talking about how Darabont said this was what the, 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 that sort of flip from the, the Shawsh- from Shawshank. So this is, you know, the dangers of hopelessness and boy, it hammers at home. Um, and on top of that, it's a, it's a, it's a fun little monster movie. I mean, there's some cool monsters. Uh, unlike Bill, I thought the, the CGI held up pretty well for something being 15 years old. And I, I kind of like the spiders. I like the little, the, the creepy, uh, you know, human skull faces on them. I especially love the way they handled the, 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 the giant monster and how you just kind of keep scaling up the monsters as it goes. Um, and so I really enjoyed that. Um, the characters, like, you know, I, like I said, I wish that uh, Mrs. Carmody was a little bit more nuanced to begin with. Her, I was fine with her after all, after all the shit went down. But then again, she needed, you know, she, I don't know, still works for me. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, no, I don't know if I really say enjoyed it. But no, I think it was, it's really well done. It, it's, it, it accomplishes what he wants to do. Um, so, I mean, I'm going to have to give this one, a, a, you know, four bullets in the chamber. So there you go. Uh, that's that's what I would give it. Uh, oh there you go. my god! Dang it! <laughs> uh, too soon. Uh, um, I saved one for myself, I guess. But yeah, it, yeah. it was good. But also, you're you're totally stealing uh, Zachary's uh, shtick from. Did uh, I steal a steal a shtick from the Cult of the Cathode Ray podcast? Oh, it's true. Oh, oh, really? Did I? <laughs> Sorry. No, it's oh, fine. Man, no, 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 I didn't. No. It's not a bad. No, it's, it's, great. it's one of my it's one of my favorite I, things. Not that I don't listen to your podcast. Yeah, you should have known. Uh, you, were, you should have should actually have been doing that. it. It's like an homage. That's what it was. It was an Maybe. homage to it. Oh, there you go. Yeah, there you go. Thanks, it, Paul. It, it, that's what it was. There's no homage to it. And if you don't listen to Cult of the Cathode Ray Tube, then you should. Cathode yeah. Ray Tube. Yeah. Cathode Ray Tube. <laughs> you should listen oh to my that. God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, and it's Fifty Two Assassins. So oh my go. God. All oh right. my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a rough day. It's been a rough it's day. Fine. So yeah, anyway, it's I should have saved that extra bullet for myself. So. Oh, <laughs> ooh, that got dark. Oh boy. Well, moving on before we uh, weird out any more of our, our fans. Um, I'm <laughs> with our with our dark tone. I'm gonna uh, say it's actually kind of interesting because I think when I originally watched this movie, I would have given it a three point five, and I kind of wonder if it sounds like Bill, you like this movie more when you first watch it than you do now. Or its its shortcomings became more apparent, and I actually wonder if I am a little bit more generous now because maybe because I didn't like it so much and I saw a lot of shortcomings when I first watched it, and I've kind of I've kind of come to terms with those things and I've kind of come to accept them, and so I've kind of come to like appreciate the things that I appreciate more. I don't know. Uh, yeah, some of the special effects I I do think they were they were a little rough even in two thousand seven because I remember thinking that. Uh, that being said, they, they did everything they could with the budget they had. Um, I, another thing, I, I haven't mentioned this, but like Frank Darabont, listening to all the interviews to kind of do some research on this movie, it is amazing. Frank Darabont will go down the list and thank everyone. He, like when he was, uh, if you listen to the commentary, like he repeatedly mentions the effects houses and all the stuff they did with what little budget they had. So it's amazing, like just how nice of a person you actually, you understand the more you listen to his interviews, you, the more you understand why people 
worked with Frank Darabont for decades because uh, apparently he's just a very nice person. But anyways, um, so yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to say originally this probably would have been a three and a half. I'm actually going to say, I appreciate this movie now more because it does feel like uh, an elevated monster movie in a way. I mean, most monster movies are kind of B movies. Uh, that's not to denigrate them or anything, but this is a, a world-class filmmaker making a monster movie and kind of elevating it. So I much like uh, Paul, I'm going to, I've got four in the, four in the chambers. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately we had to shoot one of the spiders. So I don't have five, but I have four. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's four VHS tapes for me. I think it's a phenomenal film uh, despite its shortcomings. And I think it's the sort of movie, like I said, I hadn't seen it in a while and I rewatched it and, and it was just like, man, there's, there's a, a, you know, lo and behold, we have talked about this movie for three hours. So, uh, which is usually a good sign. So I think that's it. Uh, but most importantly, uh, Bill, your, your lovely, uh, uh, wife of infinite patience, uh, Shauna, <laughs> did, did we, did, 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 yeah. did, did we, did we get a final rating from her? We did. She uh, she looked stricken when I told her that people wanted her rating because I think she I think she believes that I'm I'm like speaking to the missed lovers of America, the MLA, and uh, she did not want to be the <laughs> proverbial skunk in the garden party here. And uh, and then she kind of surprised me by saying you know, the only problem that she has with the movie is literally the ending because she doesn't understand why he didn't just ask everyone in the car to line up so he could just shoot one straight on the bullet <laughs> Probably start with the kid, because he's got the smallest head. Um, oh, absolutely. No, no, actually, that's not true. She said the, the ending, it just she doesn't, she doesn't like bleak endings, and uh, this hmm. one, I think, by any standard definition of the word bleak, is uh, pretty damn bleak. And then she gave it a four. So she likes it more than I oh. do. Hey! Yeah. Go oh. figure. Yeah. Huh. That's what I yeah. say. See? 25 years and she still surprises me. Oh. Cool. Well, so uh, that is uh, an average, uh, not including Shauna's score, that is an average of 3.75. Uh, let me actually, let's see. Let's let's do the math here. Uh if you if you include Shauna's score, that goes. Uh, I guess it's uh, my, my math may be wrong here. I got a three three point eight, so slightly better. Um, but yeah, it's still respectable. Uh, I think this is a great film. I think it's uh, it's it's definitely been interesting to talk about it. Uh, one one very last note I thought it was kind of interesting. I did not have uh, find a place to put this uh, or to mention this earlier, so I'll mention it now at the end here. Paul, you mentioned that the uh, the, the store there's a sign that says that they've been open since 1967. Um, actually I had to go and look and it's, it's very hard to see it cause it's kind of obscured, but the sign actually says, I never noticed this before until I was rewatching it. The sign actually says serving castle rock since 1967. Ah, so I thought no it was very joke. interesting. Yeah. So never mentioned anywhere else in this film. I don't think there's anything anywhere that says it, but castle rock, who, for those of you who don't know, is a, a fictional town that Stephen King has set multiple stories and books in. So, but canonically, I guess this movie does take place in castle rock. So that's kind of interesting. You should yeah. be able to pick up a house in Castle Rock for like pennies because you'd be a fool <laughs> to move there. Yeah. <laughs> and if you can't find real estate there, you can just go across the county line to Derry. And uh, Jesus. Probably... <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah. Apparently, Maine. Maine. <laughs> so it's amazing. Like, like 
uh, uh, Stevie King loves Maine, and that's why he always writes about it. But he's also, I think, convinced me that I never, I never want to visit Maine because uh, apparently it's a terrifying place. <laughs> Anyways, that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully this was an entertaining and or enlightening conversation about Frank Darabont's The Mist. And hopefully you'll join us next time, which I can't say when next time will be or what movie we'll be covering. But I uh, guarantee you at some point we'll do a another long-form episode. And in the meantime, uh, you can go back and listen to our older episodes. We've got at this point, I think like 30 or 40 where we talk about movies uh, for three hours. If this is the first time you're listening to us, we do this all the time for a bunch of different movies. So if you enjoy this format, go back and listen to those. You can also listen to uh, a podcast that's uh, been on hiatus for a while now. Maybe it'll come back at some point. Hey, guess what? Maybe not, because uh, we do this for free. <laughs> and uh, But that that podcast is The Cult of the Cathode Ray. That's the, uh, the one that we've mentioned a few times. And we have covered the entirety of season one and half of season two of the walking dead where we kind of do a a deep dive not as deep as this movie but uh we do like an hour-long episode on each episode of that show where we discuss uh each episode in depth so check that out if you like this format and that's all i have to say does anyone else have anything to say before we sign off or does anyone have anything well actually i'll just ask bill what he has to plug he's always the (laughs) Uh, only one i've been composing a song to take us out (gasps) Oh, yeah. well, okay. Hold, hold that. Hold, hold, hold that. Hold that. Uh, where else can people find you uh, other than this podcast? Oh, gruesomemagazine.com, Decades of Horror, the 70s, and Decades of Horror, the 1980s. Perfect. Uh, Paul, Renee, do you guys have anything else to plug? And I'll be at Dragon Cup. Oh, nice. Oh, oh. Yeah. okay. Uh, no. No? Paul? <laughs> not, not at the moment. Not at the moment. Um, Alrighty. Well, you the moment. should listen to Q-Tips. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Q-tips, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. We, we yeah. do weekly episodes where we recommend you things to watch. Those are much shorter than this episode. So you can listen to them while you're doing dishes or whatever. Uh, that's all <laughs> we got. So good night, everyone. And the moment we've all been waiting for, Bill, please sing us out on with okay. whatever song you have. <clears throat> the end of the mist makes Sean a pissed. That's really all I have. I mean, it's a good start. Yeah, it's a good start. It's a good start. Yeah. You know, you have a you have a hook, and really, that's all you need for a hit song. Everything else is just gravy. I steal from the best. Perfect. Good night, everyone. And what do you for the love of God, stay out of the mist? That's right. And see. And see, you know, I just realized I forgot right. something. I Uh-oh. forgot I, I, one more little bit of manipulation. We're so we're so hopeful, so desperate that he's able to get that gun. You know, uh, Ollie yeah. got chewed oh. in half and dropped the gun, and the gun's there. And and at the last minute, he's like, "Oh my God, the spider's coming!" But if I don't oh. do it now, I'm not going to get the gun. And it's like, oh, "Oh, thank God, he got the gun!" And then you know, two minutes later, like, "Ah, oh, if only he hadn't gotten the gun." Yeah. yeah. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Un- unrelenting. Oh.
It is time to take sides. Read the good book. It calls for blood. Guys, I hear something. Are those bugs? Not like any I've ever seen. The entire front of this store is plate glass. They wanted to try and make a window. Well, maybe your window turned out to be a door. Who she's going to sacrifice to make it all better? We want the boy. You try it. Kill him! Yeah. 